G'day, mate. Luke Ford here. I want to talk more about uh, Nick Fuentes possibly being charged with sedition. I've never heard of anyone being charged with sedition. It, it happens fairly rarely in the United States. I don't have any strong opinions, which means I, I'm a terrible guru and I'm a terrible pundit. I'm not going to lose sleep at night if Nick Fuentes gets convicted of sedition. I'm not going to lose sleep at night if he doesn't get convicted of sedition. I think that what happened on January 6th was terrible. I want the people involved uh, prosecuted just as I want uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa terrorists prosecuted. On the other hand, I think it fell short of an insurrection or a coup. On the other hand, I think it was more than a joke. So it was midway between a joke and a coup, which means it was serious. And I certainly didn't like the, the police getting beaten down and a lot of the violence and just bad behavior and, and the defecation. Very opposed to the defecation, <laughs> the criminal amounts of defecation on the January 6th. But uh, let's get back to Richard Spencer did this on his Twitter space about four or five days ago. To keep their powder dry, <laughs> which he kind of was. Um, he needed that decisive, outrageous, um, working for free online energy. So this is... Richard Spencer in a self-serving analysis that the alt-right was absolutely essential to Donald Trump getting elected. I think it's a, a case without any evidence. That the alt-right brought him in 2016. And that was, that morphed into and was also kind of replaced by even bigger and even crazier online movements like QAnon, like what MAGA had you know, descended into certainly by, by 2019 and 2020. And Nicholas Fuentes was a part of that. So in 2018, I, tw I tweeted out, I think I foresee a construction of a kind of neo-alt-right that is going to be very important in Donald Trump's campaign in 2020, in the sense that it's going to pick up on a lot of the energy, the frog energy of 2016, the chaos, the craziness, the silliness. I, I didn't think there was much frog energy or alt-right energy. The alt-right had been smashed by, by 2016. So no, I, I don't think the... The alt-right was, was a key part of, of Donald Trump's campaign in, in 2020. I think that's silly. Uh, et cetera. Um, but it's going to not be led by someone like me who has his own agenda. I have my own agenda. I thought, you know, in 2016, I was obviously taken in by Trump, but I am not here to be anyone's cheerleader. If Trump is Yeah, Richard Spencer is not here to be anyone's cheerleader. He is out for himself. And so Richard Spencer attached himself to the Trump train because he thought that was good for Richard Spencer. And then he thought it was good for Richard Spencer to detach from the Trump train. Richard Spencer does not appear to have any values higher than Richard Spencer. Now, if he at one point in the future comes to have values higher than himself in his own career and his own fame, then he may be possibly become a source for good in the world. But as his primary agenda is himself and his own advancement and his own fame, uh, coupled with his his uh, predilections for debauchery and excess, I don't see much good happening in Richard Spencer's life until he gets sober. ...can support what I care about and my ideas, then in, my, in the promotion of myself, to be brutally frank, then I will... Right, so at core, Richard Spencer is about promoting himself. Now, some people can promote themselves and be level-headed and emotionally sober. So I think... 50, 60% of the population can promote themselves, have, have their own well-being as their number one agenda, and, and still be sober. Uh, Richard Spencer, however, uh, due to genetics, imprinting, whatever, I, I don't expect he's going to be have to keep a sober head while he makes himself his, his number one agenda. Support it. If it's just a toxic 
you know, nonsense movement, then I'm not going to support it. I'm going to criticize it. I'm going to call it out. Well, Nicholas Fuentes was the type of person who could command an organic online movement. He was, I mean, I don't, I don't think any of his support is fake. I think he has really genuine support coming from his live streams. You can see that in the super chats. You can see that in the, you know, uh, fervency that people support him. Uh, so he had a real organic base of people, young people, non-voters <laughs> to a large degree, but people who identified with him, saw him as, as a kind of reflection of themselves, were caught up in the energy, felt like they were winning. And then once the 2020 election went south, in their view, were mad as hell and weren't going to take it anymore. Nicholas Fuentes was there very early on in the Stop the Seal movement. So early on, it wasn't Donald Trump uh, you know, out front in this. It wasn't even Lynn Wood early on, um, or Sidney Powell. Early on, it was Alex Jones. Ali Akbar, Ali Alexander, and Nicholas Fuentes riding around in Humvees, talking about the election being stolen, ginning up interest. And that Groyper army that he had accumulated, that he led, was the kind of vanguard of this movement. They were out front of it before the boomers came along. Very similar dynamic um, was at place with, with the QAnon movement. So QAnon originated on 4chan, then it went to 8chan, all that kind of stuff. It, you know, these are, this is a place of absolute craziness, um, trolling, white supremacy, uh, horrifying pornography, et cetera, for, you know, the 4chan culture and 8chan culture. Uh, by 2018, it was the Q drops were disseminated through major figures like Jerome Corsi and Alex, and Alex Jones to an audience of Gen X and boomers, people who would never in a million years go on 4chan. But they okay, this is what uh, Richard Spencer says is unambiguously a crime. This is Nick Fuentes speaking out on January 6th, Richard tweets, this is unambiguously a crime. At the very least, Fuentes is disrupting a government activity. The whole event has been declared an insurrection by prosecutors. They will treat it as such. Fuentes had lived more in reality, he wouldn't be in this trouble, right? The, the idea that Nick Fuentes and company are going to put Donald Trump back in office after he lost the 2020 election it is ludicrous. So when do you get humiliated? You get humiliated when you lose touch with reality. And uh, Fuentes may be cruising for a lot worse than just humiliation, but he's clearly lost touch with reality here. Donald Trump in office for four more years so that he can take every last illegal alien and throw them back over the border. 
Confidence is absolutely essential if you're going to become a successful pundit or live streamer or guru. All right. So Nicholas Fuentes has the confidence. He has the charisma. What he does not have is a reality. So the, the confidence that he has in, in just stating that he's going to help, you know, he's going to bring Donald Trump back for, for another term is compelling. It, it's also bat crazy. And so I think one thing that holds me back as a live streamer that about many of the most controversial issues, I don't have a strong opinion. I don't know. And I'm not sure whether or not uh, Nick Fuentes should be convicted of, of sedition. I don't have a strong opinion either way. I think the January 6th Capitol Hill riots were, were bad and should be prosecuted according to the law. I, I don't think they were a full-on coup or an insurrection, but they had elements of the coup or an insurrection. So... It's much more compelling to watch someone who is dead sure about what they're saying, has absolute confidence, sees things clearly in black and white, all right? That, that makes for compelling viewing. Uh, it also tends to detach one from reality. And people, we all tend to start believing the things that we say. And so I believe that Nick Fuentes believed what he was saying there, even though it was absolutely back crazy. So that's the downside of having confidence and, and stating your opinion so forthrightly and clearly on these issues that uh, you start believing what you say and you start believing the things that you hear from your audience and uh, you get audience capture where you, you so enjoy the, the applause and the, hey, bro, all right? Like, do, do I have the, the inner strength to ever go up against Laponius Maximus Meridius? I mean, we, we've got... We've got such a bond. I think that I've been captured by, by his charisma. Dennis says in the chat, remember how Nick after January 6th went on Twitter said he never entered the building. I think that people who claimed to have spotted him were mistaken. Well, he did not enter the building. So he was making that announcement from outside Capitol Hill. Dennis says, I don't like Nick. I'd find it hilarious if he received a life sentence. Uh, Spiritual Mama says, I give this to Richard Spencer. At least he can reflect on his own behavior somewhat. Yeah. Uh, Richard Spencer and Nick Fuentes operate in two very different genres. So Richard Spencer speaks like a graduate student. And uh, Nick Fuentes speaks like someone who didn't go to college. I don't know Nick went to college, but that's not how, how he speaks. He's, he's, a, he's a gifted communicator. But the gift and the power that Nick and you know virtually every syndicated radio talk show host has, that, that absolute conviction behind their words... It, it's largely purchased at the price of sanity and reality. And so you can leave sanity and reality for a while, but in the end, reality always wins. They were getting the drops and they were getting the interpretations. They were interpreting themselves. And it became a self-sustaining online movement. It became kind of bigger than Q itself. Or, you know, who is Q? Q is the, the whole army of people who are consuming the drops, talking about them every day, live streaming, commenting, sending in super chats, wearing a t-shirt, telling their friends, going and talking to people in Facebook groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you need a, a, a candidate like Trump needs that online energy in order to succeed. He can get that from dedicated people who are never really going to leave him. Nicholas Fuentes has criticized Trump, you know, for sometimes for good reason, you know, just to be totally fair here. At the end of the day, 
he's never really going to leave Trump. There's a kind of Fuentes two-step going on where Trump will, you know, fail. He'll do tax cuts. He'll fail at immigration reform. He'll fail at this. He'll fail at that. He'll say something stupid. And you can kind of lash out at him and say, ah, you know, Blonald bump for, you know, orange man bad or Yang gang 2019, et cetera. You can kind of lash out at him. But at the end of the day, you circle the wagons and you'll go to bat for him and you will stick with him till the end. There were clearly people who could not command this kind of online energy, who went, who saw in Fuentes a, you know, a, a, a kind of energy that they wanted to tap into. Yeah, so Nick Fuentes has a lot of energy. And why does he have a lot of energy? Because he's on the same page as his audience, right? He's not bringing 10,000 people to his point of view. He is articulating what, what much of, you know, Trump's supporters believe or wish they could articulate what they... He articulates what many young Trump supporters feel, right? And so because he's on the same page as his audience, that's a tremendous source of energy. And so when I come on here and let's say I'm arguing with every single person in the chat, that is not a source of energy for me, <laughs> all right? It, it takes, it takes it strength, it takes energy, it takes, it takes something to, to go up against every single person in your audience. And Nick doesn't have to do that. Right. Nick is in tune with his audience, his audience is in tune with him. And so they have this reciprocal rhythm going, going on where Nick thrusts his point of view out there and his audience, you know, arches their back to receive Nick's thrust. And then his audience thrusts back at Nick and Nick arches his back to receive his audience. And so it's a source of energy and enthusiasm and they keep building and building themselves up. And on the face of it, that's, that's a wonderful thing, right? You're getting energy you're getting enthusiasm, you're getting strength. But yeah, it takes a lot of beef organ supplements for that, for that kind of energy. Problem is, if the energy and the strength is leading you to do wrong things, it would be better to be weak and dispirited. Yeah, I, I fight with my audience constantly. And it's not as much of a, it's not as much of a source of energy. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of people would be better off with less energy and less strength, because then they do less damage. If the if the Capitol Hill rioters had less strength and less energy, uh, they probably wouldn't have overrun Capitol Hill. So luckily, uh, Laponius is here. I can, I can feed off his energy. And that says, uh, yeah, I know Nick didn't enter Capitol Hill, but it's hypocritical to cheer on the January 6th Capitol Hill riots and then pretend to be all innocent. Spiritual Mama says, Brittany from Politically Provoked is being captured by her audience by the Wignats. Yeah, so I, I'm I suspect that the politically provoked crew saw that they can get the biggest audience by feeding the most rabid wignats. Politically provoked is like a third-rate ripoff from the Killstream, and Killstream already sucks, says Dennis. So Nick will be questioned in person. Well, he will be questioned. It might be over Zoom. I don't think he's going to be speaking in front of Congress. Yeah, maybe he's on the Alex Jones uh, bone broth. Brittany is is a fine, fine young woman. Ralph, not so much. Harsh, but but true. Jim Bowden says, good morning, Luke. At law, there was no insurrection, mate. Where are the essential legal elements required to be contemporaneously present? Well, we will see if people get charged with insurrection. Well, he won't be able to fly there. So remember when uh, Nick Fuentes protested uh, the mask mandate on, on airlines? And uh, I think he got, got uh, kicked off the flight because he was fighting back on, 
a mask mandate. So maybe he got kicked off and put on a no-fly list because of carrying on about <laughs> mask mandates. I was just telling everybody, we're doing a press conference at 5 o'clock p.m. at the Sheridan Hotel, which is like across the street. I'll be giving my most unchanged speech ever. I'm, I'm off of Twitter. I have nothing to lose. So Nick Fuentes, he aims at an audience around 105 IQ level, and uh, Richard Spencer's audience is around the 120 IQ level. So Nick Fuentes, Mike Enoch, they're, they're talking to the like the 105 uh, IQ level. So this is going to be the most. That's not a criticism. I mean, Tucker Carlson's probably talking to the 100 IQ level. Racist. Whoa! Okay, so I don't think there are a lot of uh, doctors, neurosurgeons, high-powered lawyers, even uh, powerful accountants there joining Nick. Um, if you look up organizations like Women for Trump or Women for America First, some of these are kind of former Tea Party organizations. They are the ones that are renting out space who are seemingly, from an outside perspective, collaborating with Fuentes, knowing that they can't command a greater army. They can't command an army of teenagers and people in their early 20s, edgy, very online, you know, incels. They can't tap into that energy, but Nicholas Fuentes can, and they want to work with him. So I was always curious about the um, very large Bitcoin donation, which I think was like $200,000 or something like that, which Nicholas Fuentes got in the fall or, or winter of 2020. I, I heard about it, as a lot of other people did. It seemingly came from this mysterious French donor. Um, I have always been rather skeptical of that, it, it just strikes me as hard to believe that a French nationalist would donate something to call America first. I mean, that's just my impression. I might be wrong about that. Um, my sense was that it was really, this person also has committed suicide who, who did this. My And let's take a look at the chat. It's a pity there isn't a somewhat neutral blood sports channel. Shouldn't Trump get some of the blame for January 6th? Absolutely. I think he gets a substantial amount of the blame. White boy summer optics. Come on, Mr. Ford. Spencer's a blowhard. Maybe, but he's he's a, a grad student uh, type of blowhard. And uh, he, he speaks in, a, in an elevated intellectual way. Nick Fuentes is much more an entertainment and, and visceral mob, mob style communication. Uh, Bell says, Richard Spencer's meltdown has the same spouting effect as Nick Fuentes on January 6th. Both guys are overwhelmed 
and they keep going versus being still and thinking. Wall Street Journal reports that Alex Jones was eating the rebels in the crowd, egging things on before he reached the area. Dead Jones encouraged people not to enter the building. So he had great instincts. Also, he knew he'd be held to account since he was paid with important money, $500,000 for the event. Uh, Scott Adams says Nick Fuentes has great persuasion skills. I've been skills. asked to rate Nick Fuentes' persuasion skills. High. Very high. Now, Nick Fuentes is very controversial. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to, uh, uh, to endorse anything he says. That's for him. You know, he, he can defend himself in, uh, as much as he wants. But on the, on the narrow question of whether he's capable, yes. <laughs> yes, he is. And he's very capable. So if you think that he's a bad force in the world, you should be afraid because he's very capable. And if you think he's entertaining and useful, well, good for you. Yeah, I, Nick, Nick Fuentes isn't changing a lot of minds. He is giving energy and direction to people who are already thinking along the lines that he is. Vision of that is that it was a kind of payoff of some kind for services rendered by Fuentes. Fuentes did what needed to be done. There, this wasn't just trolling. This wasn't just live streaming for the lulls and to be based. This was playing an integral part in a major GOP strategy to take back the election of 2020. He was an integral, decisive, indispensable part in that. And I think that's good analysis there. That's solid. And you have to ultimately pay people when they're doing a service like that. So that's just my, that's my outside view. I don't have any direct evidence for that. Uh, I would stress that. Um, that's just simply my view. God knows that Ali Akbar, Ali Alexander, um, generated tons of funds by jumping on Stop This Deal really early and fundraising off it privately. Um, you know, I, 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 that is my sense that that payment was a kind of payoff. I might very well be wrong about that. And it was a genuine gift that just so happened to occur at that time. Um, I'm skeptical. And it's very clear that the J6 committee is skeptical. They mentioned that in their press release. Um, and they, they seem to think that money was changing hands in a you know, quid pro quo fashion. This for that. You get your, your online army behind Stop the Steal, you get paid off. Now, I think that Fuentes, and this is owing to his youth in many ways, was taken for a ride in all of this. Um, I, I will say this, and I say this absolutely truthfully and absolutely genuinely, I feel sorry for Fuentes. Um, I don't like Nicholas Fuentes personally. I don't like Nicholas Fuentes ideologically. Hey, so we've got some... Two stories out this week about Nick Fuentes. His one white nationalist, Nick Fuentes, subpoenaed by January 6th committee, suggested killing legislators days before a riot. Oh, man, you can't even hear it. Come on, man. Come on, man. Man, didn't you hear that dangerous rhetoric? What are we going to do to them? Oh, man, that was a really bad clip. So as the House Select Committee for January 6th moves to compel testimony from Nick Fuentes, they could start by asking him how he floated the idea of killing legislators just days before the storming of the Capitol. What can you and I do to a state legislator besides kill them? Fuentes says, although we should not do that, I'm not advising that. I mean, what else can you do right? Well, he didn't, didn't suggest killing legislators, making the point that uh, you, can't, you can't force 
legislators to to do things. And there was a, a, a Christian intellectual who argued that because politicians no longer fear violence, they become more irresponsible. That was a, a European Christian intellectual in the 19th, late last half of the 19th century. Kevin Michael Grace told me about that quote. Uh, for the most part. But, and I, I think that whole kind of ironic, trollish attitude is just, it can be funny on occasion. It's ultimately toxic. But I do feel sorry for him because I don't think he was the mastermind in this. I think he was an actor in someone else's play. He was a pawn on the board. There were big, you know, institutions in Conservatism Inc. that wanted to take advantage of the Groyper. And the chat says, I used to be a neo-communist and I saw Nick Fuentes kissing that cat boy and I became a paleocon. Better says, Richard Spencer just regurgitates Schmittian and Nietzschean talking points. You're better off reading them yourself. And Abel says, Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, seems to have blown it. He's become dull, slow talking. He's already rich. He could have been big. He had a hot young girlfriend who distracted him. And uh, didn't Andy Nowicki get a visit from the FBI for being an incel? And the energy that he created in an organic fashion. They wanted to tap into that lightning, that electricity that he created. And at the end of the day, it's people like Fuentes who are going to be the fall guy when the shit hits the fan. It's Fuentes who was out there, who everyone's looking to, who's holding a megaphone, boldly declaring, this is great that you stopped the, the uh, counting of the votes. Go in there right now. Go do more of it. We're not leaving here until Donald Trump is president. Now, was this ever going to be successful? No. But is that kind of language sedition? Yes. And so you have a lot of people, longtime institutions, the boomers that you know, Fuentes rages against, that were using him for their own ends. And then he is going to face some sort of consequences that maybe they will not, because he became the face of this thing. And in that sense, though I'm not a Fuentes fan, I do genuinely feel sorry for him. But it just, it's just a, a bigger lesson, a cautionary tale about getting involved in these toxic movements. It's, you know, and here I, I think one does have to be ideologically principled and serious about what you really want. If you're just doing things, you're trying to please your crowd, you're, you're just kind of going with the flow and you're, you know, preaching to the choir, you're, you're, you know, trying to tap into these bigger forces, you can sometimes get burned really bad. I am interested in promotion of my own ideas and principles. If someone like Trump is, you know, encouraging that, then that's great. If it's just this toxic, stupid Trump movement, then I have no interest because that type of movement is actually damaging me and damaging my ideals. And there's no question that, you know, I, I became a household name. The spotlight was on me for a time, but I too have been damaged by my association with this political fanaticism. It is what it is. Um, damaged by his association with political fanaticism, Richard Spencer is damaged due to his own behavior and his own language. He doesn't, doesn't need any, any damage from, from other people. I mean, he's done a pretty good job himself. Like a fucking hundred times. I am so mad. I am so fucking mad at these people. They don't do this to fucking me. We're going to fucking ritualistically humiliate them. I am coming back here every fucking weekend if I have to. Like, this is never over. I win. They fucking lose. That's how the world fucking works. Little fucking kites. They get ruled by people like me. Little fucking octoroons. I fucking, my ancestors, fucking enslaved those pieces of fucking shit. We're, we're I rule the fucking world. 
Okay, so uh, Nick Puentes believes he's on a no-fly list. Maybe it was because of his own behavior vis-a-vis the -vis mask. I don't know exactly, but uh, Ian Miles Strong says Nick Puentes isn't on a no-fly list. He was likely just banned by an airline for getting verbally abusive toward their staff in December. Here's Nick, December 4th, 2020. I think about to get kicked off my flight to Pennsylvania because my mask isn't covering my nose. Yep, just got kicked off. Is the best. I never refused to wear the mask, but the flight attendant had the plane go back to the gate and had me removed because of my attitude. Power trip. I got up and looked him in the eyes and said, hey, F you. He replied, enjoy your time in Chicago. And I said, yeah, eat. So that must feel good for, for Nick. And I'm sure he's got plenty of fanboys applauding that. It's also the type of behavior that can get you permanently banned from flying. You know, I don't have regrets so much as I try to learn things and try to do things differently in the future. Um, I don't know if Fuentes is going to get that chance because Fuentes kept going. He put his chips on the table. He said that the election was fraudulent. We aren't leaving here until Donald Trump is president. He won by a landslide, etc. And it's at some point like that's that's fun. To and a question from the chat. Has Richard Spencer ever addressed that audio? Yes, he has. And he says that he was upset because uh, Charlottesville had not turned out the way that he had hoped, and he played it as one of his exhibits at Charlottesville. So I'll play some, some Richard Spencer talking about Charlottesville. And do on some live stream to your fans who are going to send you, you're gonna send you super chats. You go and do that in real life. It doesn't matter how buffoonish you are. It doesn't matter that you're waving a Kekistani flag and that you're all kind of silly kids. That is going to be treated as sedition by the state. It's very serious stuff. And... I don't think Fuentes will get out of this without a conviction, to be honest. And I thought that for about a year, and I think that that is happening right now. All righty. Um, that is, those are my thoughts. Just Okay, let's get uh, Richard here speaking about Charlotte's Mr. Richard Spencer, you're here. Hello, sir. Hey, Ralph. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. How you doing? Well, I had a great Thanksgiving, and... Um, about to get on the road again and uh crazy month of october to put it mildly but or crazy month of november rather to put it mildly but um yeah i'm good gonna survive now let's just address it at the top of the show now um because i don't know how much you can talk about it or not what uh, i had for thanksgiving you're talking about <laughs> just what did you have on your plate richard <laughs> the fact that the cowboys are kind of sucking right now that's another like really big issue for me yeah up in dallas yeah i actually was watching a little bit of the game before we came on we'll see if, <laughs> yeah, they, uh, if they take out the saints tonight um now of course i was referring to the little uh shindig they had there in charlottesville the trial um uh, now i know you can't talk uh you can't go into specifics perhaps it's up to you whatever you want to say of course i won't stop you <laughs> But right. uh, you have your own uh, your own interest, though. So of this course, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I won't stop you if you want to go into it further. But uh, I figured I'd let you talk about it here at the top, and you know I, I can't stop other folks uh, for bringing it up. But we, we'll just let you address it here, and then you can. Your chances of getting sued, so being honest and open and forthright with people, and just noticing reality, right? You start hurting people, they will give you cues to stop doing that. So be a man of your word, be open, be forthright, obey the law. All sorts of things you can do to reduce your chances of. 
quote, which is so fun. Five times in the Bible. Back uh, 99 and tell them no comment. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll be as objective as possible. I mean, for, first off, I, objective, objective in the sense that I, I'm not going to say anything that's, that might affect anything in the future, but I'll just talk about stuff that is oh. you know, in the public domain. Just, um, hold on, I'll replay this. Let, let him get this out, and then I'll replay all the uh, TTS for sure, and, and we won't stop any, but I want to let him speak on this clearly at the top. Yeah, I'll talk about stuff that's in the public domain, and I will you know, talk about general feelings and things like that, but I, I do want to be careful, as you understand. Sure. I don't want to, um, because I think we might have to do this again. Um, so I had a fool for a client. I was acting on my own behalf, pro se. Um, I don't regret that, actually, in the slightest. I learned quite a bit about the legal system, uh, for one thing. Uh, secondly, I don't think the outcome indicates that I did a poor job. I went up to bat a number Yeah, I learned a lot about the legal system, too. For example, uh, you can be forced to turn over a source. And so I, one may not want to do that, and then to avoid that, one may need to settle a lawsuit of times across examination i struck out a few times i grounded out to second a few times i hit a few singles so it just was what it was um i don't really think that paying a hundred thousand dollars to someone to reach the same same outcome would have been a good idea but anyway um it was fascinating and i think the other aspect of just representing yourself you get to speak directly to the jury and um so look the outcome itself i saw a lot of headlines that were like you know uh neo-nazis destroyed forever they owe 25 million yeah. to uh the plaintiffs I, and I'm not just saying this, I don't want to spin this and be like, we won or whatever. No, we didn't win. It was a horrible, <laughs> you know, going to trial, whether it's divorce, whether it's a civil trial, certainly a criminal trial. I've never been in a criminal trial. Um, it's basically, they are looking up your skirt. I mean, you are laid bare and you can't hide anything and people are pointing out. Uh, so a lawsuit is, is one version of a confrontation or a fight. And you never know what's going to happen when you get into a fight. You may push someone and they punch you back. You may barely brush someone walking down the street here in Los Angeles and they may turn around and lay you out. You may accidentally step on someone's foot and they turn around and stab you. So when you get into a confrontation, things can escalate and the ideal is to try to get through life having as good of as possible relations with, with other people and showing up to Charlottesville and see Kyling and uh, being intoxicated like Richard Spencer was on that day is not a good idea. Your imperfections, and particularly in this trial where we were going up against uh, very powerful law firms and uh, very intelligent people. I mean, they're obviously, they're, they don't have... Yeah, so in large part, thanks to Richard Spencer's antics, the opposition to the alt-right is 1,000 times more intelligent, more organized, and more capable than those who support uh, the alt-right. My best interest at heart, but they are intelligent and skillful, and the exhibit list that they amassed was tremendous. Uh, but you know, it was what it was. You, you kind of have to be able to face something like that. Now, a lot of you saw a lot of headlines of like, oh, you know, neo Nazis blown apart or whatever. That's not really what happened. So the big things that the plaintiffs were going after were sections 1985 and 1986 of U.S. Code 4142, known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, um, and they the jury was deadlocked on the two big issues. Uh, for everyone. And I would remind you that one of the aspects of this is that they're charging a, a malign conspiracy, effectively. So they were lumping me and with James Fields. I have never met James Fields or communicated with James Fields in my life. Um, they are, you know, Chris Cantwell was there. Jason Kessler is, of course, the chief organizer, all sorts of people. They're lumping us all together. And then all sorts of these, uh, you know, organizations that I had no connection to, uh, lumping us all together and basically claiming that it was one big thing. Now, they failed in 1984, 1985, or at least it was deadlocked. So that means that that 
could be filed again. The complaint could be filed again. Now, in terms of Virginia law, uh, uh, they found against me in terms of a conspiracy, which is a, just a very simple concept. They were kind of, you know, I, I certainly agreed to take part in the Charlottesville rally. Um, I did not agree to take part in any kind of, you know, bad behavior. Uh, they also found against me in terms of um, a, a kind of state law, Virginia state law of, of racial animosity, uh, basically. And um, I as you can imagine, we'll contest that in various ways. The plaintiffs themselves, who were also witnesses, testified that I did not harm them. And they were certainly given a chance to say otherwise. They either didn't remember me, they didn't recognize me, or in the case of Elizabeth Sines, the chief plaintiff, um, she testified that she saw me, she recognized me, and I did nothing to her. I did not scream at her, I did not address her. I basically, it's it, it kind of embarrassing, I went up to the top of the stairs and tried to give a speech, but there was no, <laughs> there was no, the battery was out right. on the microphone, so I was like, this is an historic victory, and no one was listening to <laughs> I've seen that happen uh, then, covering these rallies. Yeah. Right, so that's the downside at allying yourself with a group that's simply not very competent and highly likely to be intoxicated. And, life, yeah. yeah, and then she said, I walked off. So um, that is, you know, I'm not going to quite say what I'm going to do. That will be in the public domain afterwards, sure. but that strikes me as a bit dubious. Um, the next counts involve James Fields. Now, the problem with James Fields is he did not participate in this um, civil action. He, um, I, I think James Fields is in a very bad place from what I understand. Um, and he has pled guilty to criminal charges, and it is there's no there's no hope really. Um, so he those are the the last three charges were against him in particular for the car accident. Now, in terms of plaintiffs, again, there there was it was a kind of mixed bag. I mean, there were people who were directly injured by James Fields in the car incident um, on August twelfth, twenty seventeen. I do truly understand their position seeking relief. Um, again, those same people testified that they didn't see me, they didn't recognize me, et cetera. Um, interestingly, um, nothing was awarded to Elizabeth Sines, the first person, the first plaintiff, it's Sines v. Kessler. And um, nothing was awarded also to a uh, rather dubious uh, minister named uh, Wispelway or something like that. So the whole thing is a mixed bag of an outcome. And I do think these things are important. I mean, it's not just, you know, for, I mean, it's important to me personally, obviously, but I, I do think it is important. And in, in a way, the plaintiffs have, or the plaintiffs' counsel, rather, have, have won in the sense that the threat of a lawsuit like this hangs over the head of anyone doing any action like this. These types of lawsuits aren't being used against BLM. I, if you use the logic of the plaintiffs, you could easily make an argument that there are some, you know, Marxist theorist, the, the Richard Spencer of the BLM, who are coming up with all these, you know, ideas, and they are inspiring people to go protest, but really that protest is just a, um, an excuse to go loot or riot or, or beat up uh, people left. And I just want to play a little bit more from Richard Spencer's Twitter space about four days ago. Just about three more minutes of this, and then we'll return to Richard on the Charlottesville trial. We got trial. the conversation started. Um, we have about four people who've made requests, so I'll let you guys in. And um, you can ask me questions. So, Gotika Communista Fascista, you are up first. So you have to uh, unmute your mic. Hi, Nick Hi, Richard Spencer. All of you. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Okay. Um, Oakville Citian? Oakville, you are up. Can you hear me, Richard? Yes, I can. I distinctly recall that time uh, you and Nick got into a giant argument on a live stream. Uh, do you feel like you have ended up on the better side of the tracks after this uh, this amazing occurrence here? Um. Well, yeah, I, I don't really want to dance on anyone's grave um are you talking about a 2017 i mean yeah it was a long time ago but i always just found that to be a bit funny yeah well i mean i think 
for a long time, I mean, look, for, for a long time, I was flying high as Mr. Alt-Right and, you know, notorious, whatever. Then I started feeling a lot of pressure that I really wasn't prepared to fight off, where there was, you know, there were a lot of media stories that were ultimately kind of glowing. You know, even if they said, oh, he's a bad character or whatever, they were ultimately kind of pumping me up. After, um, particularly after Charlottesville, I mean, that, that was a real turning point. Um, these stories were nasty. Um, these stories were I think in a way it's almost redundant down, to say um, that the deplatforming, particularly from payment processors. But okay, so why were the stories nasty? Richard is talking as though the, the media nasty stories about him just came out of the blue. They, they came out as a result of uh, bad choices by Richard Spencer, such as deciding to publicly align the alt right with Nazism. Right, a bad move in an Anglo country. But uh, Richard talks about this as though it, these things just happened to him, and he was just minding his own business. Also, just from the web, that was a really serious issue. Um, it's much less of an issue for me now, as um, I have made it very clear that I'm interested, you know, in ideological, philosophical discussion. Um, I'm not. Do- yeah, he's interested in ideological and philosophical discussion, but he wants to use C. Kyle and all sorts of, you know, Nazi terminology and scream insane things. But he's interested in a philosophical discussion. Doing activism. Um, and so that hasn't, you know, harmed me. But I mean, Nick was also flying high. Nick was never really in the situation that I was in in 2016 and 2017. Yeah, that's because he didn't make as bad choices. He didn't you know, publicly align himself with, with Nazism and go around screaming, you know, see Kyle and the like, and try to have people affirm him as a Fuhrer. Because he was new. Um, but- no, not because he was new, but because he had better judgment. Yeah, uh, Nick Fuentes, a guy but 15, 18 years younger than Richard Spencer, consistently showed better judgment than Richard prior to the January 6th debacle. Nick also had more or a more organic fan base than I did um, because Nick... A uh, question from the chat, is aligning with communism a good move in an Anglo country? Is about 30 times more socially acceptable compared to aligning with Nazism in an Anglo country. Represents his people. He kind of plays to his crowd. He preaches to the choir in a way that I never did and never would and never could. And so he was kind of flying high in the movement. I mean, I think he was clearly the most, you know, popular alt-right or dissident right figure for some time. And, but, you know, again, you, if you're just doing live streams, that's one thing, but he went out there in, I think what in a is way it's the almost most redundant. toxic, mendacious movement that I have ever seen in my life. And that is the Stop the Steal, QAnon, Trump 2020 nonsense. Really more toxic and uh, mendacious than what uh, Richard was peddling. I mean, both have toxicity and mendaciousness uh, levels off the charts. And he put his chips down. And I think he almost had to, in a way. Um, And he's going to get burned by it. So, yeah, there is a certain irony to that. I don't want to stress it (laughs) too much. There's also an irony in the fact that so much of Nick's rise came after Charlottesville with the kind of optics war. The optics war that was played by you know, some people, not, not necessarily Nick, but some people with some of the worst possible optics like Weave and Andrew Anglin and so on, that was basically tearing down, tearing apart the movement, tearing, certainly tearing down me. And the optics war didn't tear down the movement. Richard's taking a very superficial analysis here. The optics war was a reflection of the low quality of the people in the movement. When you have high quality people in a movement, there's no need to have optics wars, right? You only have optics wars when you're dealing with a bunch of degenerate antisocial types. So the optics war was a reflection of the poor caliber of the people in the movement, the general antisocial orientation of the people in the movement. It didn't take 
otherwise saintly figures and turn them into losers. Basically saying that this is how pragmatic we are. Like you guys are a bunch of thugs and losers. We are the real pragmatists who are going to take power by trusting in Trump and looking like conservatives and talking like conservatives and waving flags, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that ended up in J6. That's where that path went. So there is like a tremendous amount of irony in all this. Even pa- I noticed that Patrick Casey as well was subpoenaed. So he's been dragged into this. And he was the ultimate just nasty optics war kid. And he even threw Nick under the bus after J6. So it was, um, yeah, he... Yeah, you get a lot of antisocial people and they're not able to work with each other very long. So ever since uh, Trump's election, the alt-right turned far more of their enmity on each other rather than against the left. Always playing that game. I don't know what has happened to Patrick or where he is at this point, but um, again, he's going to face something. I didn't know he was involved with J6 at all. I didn't see, I didn't see any pictures of him there, but apparently he was there. Um, he's pretty easy to miss and forget, uh, forget because he's just such a dork. But, um, you know, apparently he was there, according to this memo. Uh, so yeah, it has ended up very bad for them. And- I guess he's a dork because he's not sleeping with women in the movement left and right. Here are Nick and Richard in Happier Days back in 2017. I think in a way it's almost redundant to say that you're a white nationalist. We know that the word nation almost implicitly talks about ethnicity. And so I think if I call myself a nationalist, it's almost implicit in that word that it's, well, you know, America does have a heritage of being a European country. So, But that's really how I see myself. You are a racial identitarian. Is it your first uh, approximation that Nick's view does not contradict your view? Uh, I, what Nick just said, I would not contradict at all. Um, I wish there were more conservatives like Nick as opposed to conservatives who uh, uh, get excited by uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, I think we would have to in some way affirm that identity as real. So I, I think I'm in agreement there. So, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I agree with, uh, with, with everything uh, Nick just said. Even if we stopped all immigration tomorrow, because the country is, in terms of births, less than 50 percent white already, things are already destined to be very different, um, to say the least. It's a very simple Um, It's a very simple task for how to change that in terms of we could very easily identify which variables have to change to reverse that situation. You have the native-born population or the white population. You have the foreign-born population. You have to get one of these numbers to increase, one of these numbers to go down. It's very simple to identify those variables and to identify ways to make one go up and one go down. It's a lot more difficult to actually pursue that. Um, But I don't think there's really a big difference. I think me and Richard... Yeah, so from an outside perspective, there's no meaningful difference between Nick Fuentes and Richard Spencer. I think there's a lot less difference than people might think. I think it's going to take a radical vision. We have to be thinking outside the box, not in the way that Conservative Inc. is doing. So I think there's some overlap. Maybe we disagree about how long America has to go or what the solution is, but generally we agree on the problem. So there you go, Nick. Thank you. This is, this is beautiful. This is, I'm loving what I'm hearing. It's true though, but it's true. The new world will be written along the lines of ethnicity and race. It's not going to be about ideology and ideas and all that for very long. And the 2% African allows me to say the N word. So I really have the best of all worlds. Well, sometimes race is the, the primary, primary factor in identity, and sometimes it's religion, and sometimes it's geography, and sometimes it's profession. And uh, human, human identity is, is complicated. So often race, number one. 
other times religion number one factor other times profession people want to be with other people in their same profession or social class right? race is sometimes important for identity sometimes less important left and right. You could make that argument. You could use this as a weapon against really any movement. Now, I think the, the movement they wanted, wanted to use it against was the alt-right of 2017. Uh, they certainly would want to use it against any kind of radical right-wing type movement as just a threat of, we are going to put you through hell. And it is hell. It's absolute hell. I mean, you, you know, talk about... Yeah, but it's hell that's not imposed without reason. Like, if if he was more thoughtful and introspective, he could list off 15 things that he did to precipitate this hell, not just for himself, but for other people. That would be a particularly useful commentary. Lifting up the kimono, looking up someone's skirt. I mean, uh, if it is a, I do not. Okay, people don't walk around just lifting up anybody's kimono, right? You have to have done things to precipitate such opposition that they are invested in lifting up your kimono. So you can say things in a way that uh, that is, is more socially acceptable, that is able to be heard by more people, but you can say things in an inflammatory way that will make 95% of people hate you. Richard has frequently chosen to take the angle of, let me say something that 95% of people in America are going to absolutely hate if they hear it. So that then attracts blowback. Not wish this upon anyone. Outside of the people who send mean super chats, I do wish it upon them. <laughs> Speaking of mean super chats, <laughs> we have a couple here. I'll play them. Um, I'm glad you weighed in very, more than I thought, actually. And um, I see here, you know, we played a video, um, I guess, and I, you said it wasn't a win, da, 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 but we played a video, and a lot of the, the media attention after the verdict was, yeah, Nazi smashed, uh, ruined, and never, never again, and all this. Ollie says, I've come to realize there are way too many Spurgs in the so-called right. Basically, 99% of the people in the chat should be ignored. They're destructive and too dumb to realize or care type of stuff right. uh and then we watched a i want to say i think it was charlotte north carolina i believe a local reporter there not charlottesville uh, but i guess she was at the trial and um she gave she was a legal analyst and she gave her take on it and her take was they lost big uh was her take and was like the only one i saw saying this by the way but she went through very thoroughly and explained why she believed that uh that they had spent 25 million dollars and all this money or whatever much they spent uh and this yeah. is what they got as a result and it wasn't exactly a resounding victory though uh, it wasn't i mean when you you know i don't want to declare victory right. by any stretch yeah. but at the same time could you maybe say uh, we lost the game, but we were down by three in the fourth quarter. I think that's kind of fair, a moral victory. In terms of the plaintiffs, look, these, uh, look, I, the plaintiffs' counsel, I mean, look, these guys are going after me, whatever, they hate me, and, you know, they want to destroy me, maybe. I don't know what's in their hearts and minds. But they are intelligent people. They are highly skilled people. They are at the top of their game. Uh, they could reasonably expect. Right, so one dentist who hates you is probably going to be far more effective in damaging you than, you know, 100 high school dropouts. Right, and as opposed to one dentist on your side, is going to be far more effective than having a hundred high school dropouts on your side. So Richard Spencer, by publicly aligning himself with Nazism, he's much more likely to reach the you know skinhead dropouts than he is to reach a dentist or an accountant. A slam dunk, to use another sports metaphor, they could reasonably expect just blowing people away. And in terms of the people who didn't participate, um, they just made everything. They made everything worse for me and the other def defendants who, who did participate. They got dunked. And and what did you do to make things worse for you, Richard, and for others? Time, and you know, but I that's when you you'll know that you know Richard has has turned things around and attained some maturity, and is not so pathologically driven to destruction. When he starts introspecting about, oh, the things that he did wrong that hurt himself and other people. 
I don't know when you're, when something's this asymmetric and it ends up in a kind of murky situation. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think I saw that. I think I tweeted out that report as well. And I thought, yeah, wow, this is someone. This is fair. I mean, they raised a hell of a lot of money to set a major precedent. They did not set that precedent. Right. The jury was deadlocked. And that was what it was really all about, uh, too. Like you said, or eighty-five or eighty-five and eighty-six. That's the case, and those those were not decided upon. So, all yeah. right. Now, now, what about now? Obviously, you have some critics, some some people that you would say didn't like you, uh, as we've seen. We knew that already, though. But what do you say about? Um, like uh, to that person who said that about about you there. Let me go back to the comment. Um, you know, why, why would anybody care? They don't like you now. And how does it affect them? I guess you know what I mean. Like, what what is the reason? To- okay, let's uh, see. We've got uh, Duvid, Duvid, long time no talk. Uh, see what's going on with brother Duvid. How are you, Duvid? Hey, brother Shem. One second, Luke. Yep, yep. No worries. And you know, again, I don't. There's no love lost. I don't feel like I have anything at stake with them. I don't feel like I'm part of the same movement as them. I do think that they also represent the the alt right or the hey, right better than Luke. I did. Uh, welcome back to um, America. But- thank you, thank you. How you been, David? Rukashem. So, what have you been uh, working on? We haven't spoken for what six weeks. I think the last time we talked on a stream. Yeah, I spoke to you briefly in Australia, but. Uh... Yeah, I'm running my eBay business. Um, you know, doing my research, still my weekly stream with Church of Entropy. Um, but you know, nothing, nothing major, nothing necessarily, uh, you know, worth uh, you know, worth mentioning that may be interested uh, to your audience. You know, I've done some interviews. I've been on some shows. I've still been doing Charles Moskowitz weekly. And. What did you think about what happened in Texas where a rabbi and three congregants was uh, taken hostage by Muslim terrorists, apparently wanting wanting one of his favorite Muslim terrorists to be released from prison? And it turned out that the rabbi had let the guy in because he looked cold. So the rabbi talked about all the security training he'd done, but I don't think there's much uh, security training for, for Jewish organizations that says, oh, if people look cold, then just invite them in. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you want to talk about that, we look at it in two, two separate, like, you know, was this rabbi incompetent, somewhat to say what the story that he tried to give over of what happened? Um, and, and maybe he was trying to, you know, how I might read what happened versus the larger scene of, of possibly call like rising anti-Semitism and versus uh, global um, military action, you know, saying that, uh, you know, is Israel and the U.S., in the state of war with maybe Pakistan and uh, you know, that uh, you know, there is some larger geopolitical strategy and a lot of these debates, like with kind of like neocons and uh, you know, did America go to war with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan um, as a favor to the Jews or for our own national interest. And uh, you know, like this is old school, like this guy was probably just mentally disturbed, but if it was an old school, like PLO terrorist type action where, you know, the goal was some sort of prisoner hostage exchange and uh, is it directly related to us foreign policy? Like, of course we're at war with those people. We wage war with those people uh, for decades. We've imprisoned uh, their people. And like, of course, uh, you know, they're going to do things like this in order to try to uh, get their, uh, you know, prisoners, uh, released and of course they're going to target uh, the jewish community uh because you know israel and uh the you know the 
uh, Israel lobby or the Jewish lobby was one of the biggest forces uh, that uh, pushed for these uh, you know, wars in the Middle East. So I, I thought it was pretty you know interesting all the different uh, angles. Like let alone you know we talk about uh, basic synagogue security. Like uh, you know was this rabbi incompetent? Yeah, so certainly parts of the Jewish community supported the, say, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, but uh, overall Jews in America were far less uh, supportive of these invasions than the average American. And there's a growing uh, left-wing pacifist strand in Jewish organizations that's uh, strongly opposed to international war. But one thing that disturbs me about these synagogue attacks is that every time you get one, I think you're more likely to have others in the future because this this news gets out there and then more and more people think, oh, you know, I should do that. You know, that, you know, that inspires me. So do you think we're, we're seeing we're seeing the beginning of a trend of, of a spate of synagogue attacks? Yeah, I mean, God forbid uh, you know, Jews are logical targets. So, uh, you know, to some extent, uh, this man was correct that by targeting a synagogue that he'd be more likely to have his demands met that like he got the ear of the governor and uh you know president biden himself you know like 200 uh, special forces came outside um that uh you know, as the rabbi put it uh that this man thought that americans value the lives of jews more than other people and so he held jews hostage uh, because, you know, Americans are a philo-Semitic country that values Jews more than other people. And uh, yeah, I don't know if that's how you word it or agree with that, but to some extent, it's logical. And to some extent, uh, he proved his point by how much attention has been given this, like, relatively to, uh, you know, I'm not sure how often a hostage uh, situation takes place, but I think there's, you know, like here in Metro Detroit, there's been a few hostage uh, situations that I don't think uh, garnered national attention. And in terms of, uh, you know, the president, the governor, uh, national media, uh, you, you know, during uh, the time, and, and if he had a specific political goal as like a politi- as a uh, prisoner exchange, that like, yes, it's more likely that these things are going to keep on continuing. The FBI and uh, the experts all say that it's continuing to happen. I think possibly also the the response that the Jewish community gives um, might backfire and might actually cause this stuff to continue uh, because um, if we look at ourselves as just individuals as opposed to a collective, but Jewish collective action (coughs) um, probably causes a collective reaction as opposed to saying this was an individual, like like initially when they said it wasn't an anti-Semitic act, it was an act of international terrorism that had a political purpose and the targets happened to be individual Jews. Um, but when we react to it as a target, you know, the Jewish community that, uh, that causes uh, possibly more likely uh, to continue and saying that we are a collective and uh, in there, I don't know if that makes sense to you. And, and, you know, even, you know, I've said that, that uh, if we acted individualistically, and said this was just an individual crime against a Jew, that we don't need special laws for uh, anti-Semitism or censorship or any of these things. All we need is law and order. Like, I don't care how much people hate. They can hate me all they want as long as there's a, a, a trustworthiness of law and order 
that if someone breaks the law, they're going to be violated. And that's not the, you know, the major direction of the Jewish community. Right. And after every time uh, you get one of these events, security just massively ramps up in, in Jewish life. So it's amazing to me that there are synagogues without an armed security guard on Shabbos. And we have to pay for it. I'm saying like, obviously, like even this thing, there's only three people there and this synagogue even had a grant. So then it's like now the government has to pay for armed security versus, uh, you know, saying like, Luke, you got to carry a gun, you know, like, like, you know, you're you're the you're the convert, like you're going to carry the gun or like Duvid, you're the half Jew, Uh, you know, saying we're going to choose you to carry the gun versus we're going to hire armed security, which is expensive and maybe a lot of synagogues have money, but um, you know, actually, that was part of uh, grants. I think there was $180 million in one of these recent uh, spending packages that was specific towards uh, security in New York and uh, you know, various things. So it's a double-edged sword where, where it points out, like, no, I mean, America is a philo-Semitic country. America extends significant amount of governmental resources specifically to protecting the Jewish community. And then the outcome of uh, action like this is that the government has to become even more philo-Semitic and spend even extra resources of money to uh, defend the Jewish community, which goes into the anti-Semitic tropes and in in this man's claim that, uh, you know, that uh, Americans value the lives of Jews more than uh, its uh, uh, non-Jewish citizens. Well, also the, the disproportionate amount of hate crimes have been aimed at Jews. So therefore, that's why... The, the Homeland Security funds are allocated according to the statistics of, of uh, who, who, which groups are the most likely to, to be victimized by hate crimes. So when I was growing up as a Seventh-day Adventist, there, there were never any armed guards at church. You didn't get attacks at Seventh-day Adventist facilities, but you get proportionally huge amount of attacks, hate crime attacks at, at Jewish facilities as opposed to, say, Seventh-day Adventist ones or, or Baha'i temples. So, so Jews continue to to be in 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 the spotlight, a focus of attention for so much of this antisocial, criminal, rage-filled behavior. Like uh, they they may be mentally unbalanced, yet you know why is it that they're so often choosing Jews? Right. So even the the mentally unbalanced, they have a kind of logic that they're operating on. So I think this guy was trying to get attention for his cause. And uh, in, in his demented mind, he still realized that he'd probably get more attention by going after a synagogue and a rabbi than if he'd gone after a 7-Eleven. We haven't seen that in that whether it's anti-Semitic or not, uh, that that there is a, you know, a reality to that factor to say that uh, um, international terrorist uh, actions against the United States are more likely to target the Jewish community. So if you're not just talking about internally hate crimes in America, like African-Americans or white or white supremacists, uh, but specifically uh, Islamic, um, that uh, they're most likely to uh, target the Jewish community. And, uh, you know, new Islamic people in the U.S. that want to do something against the United States disproportionately are likely to uh, attack the Jewish community. And, uh, you know, you could argue with the logic of, uh, you know, of, of uh, you know, so to say anti-Semites or international terrorist organizations or, you know, be like a self-hating Jew and say, like, it's our fault. It's, uh, you know, it's related to Israel and the wars in the Middle East 
in these various things. But from a law enforcement uh, aspect, you say, like, no, the Jews are unquestionably more likely to be uh, targeted. And how should we go about uh, about that? Should the U.S. government specifically expend extra efforts to defend the Jewish community? Um, and then that causes more fracture within the Jewish community because you know, most American Jews are assimilated. So uh, you know the organizational Jews, Jews that go to Jewish places, uh, you know, Federation, uh, JCCs, uh, synagogues, uh, represent probably less than 25% of American Jews. So the 75% of American Jews that uh, aren't really affiliated with a larger Jewish community that don't go to Jewish institutes become even even uh, less likely to uh, go to Jewish institutes that, uh, you know, like, okay, maybe someone's going to go to synagogue, but if they have to go past a security checkpoint or if it makes them, uh, you know, everyone's like, no, like, you know, we're, we are more likely to be targets, that that causes the further faction and divide uh, between the uh, you know, the larger assimilated Jewish community and, uh, you know, the established, uh, I don't call it segregated or, or, you know, Jews that are involved in Jewish institutes. Now, one thing that uh, surprises me is the number of, like, left-wing Jews say guns have no place in synagogue. There is a peak of passion on the, on the left of, of Jewish life. Insane to, to say, oh, guns don't belong in a synagogue, that we shouldn't be armed to protect ourselves. I find it hard to understand that point of view. It's, it's armed men with guns who are the most likely to pay for the synagogue. Any thoughts on this widespread left-wing Jewish perspective? No armed men and no guns in synagogue? Well, yeah, I'm missing the, <laughs> the majority uh, political position of uh, the Jewish community in America is largely gun control. And guns are less popular among Jews than uh, than our non-Jewish counterparts. Although you know that's just statistically if you, uh, that, and you know maybe Jews in relatively safe suburbs um, don't face that much danger. That uh, you know if you go to a, a a good public school if they still exist, or or you know integrated secular private schools, you don't need armed security. Um, you're more nervous about like you know the the republican that has guns uh than uh than being a victim of crime so if that's circumstantial like if you're in la and you said like crime happens all the time or uh you know just the crime statistics and you're looking like no we need security we need guns to keep us safe uh but but i say no no i mean majority of jews uh live in relatively safe suburban places and don't need guns to keep us safe don't need guns, armed security at our institutes, and uh, it makes our institutes less interesting or less safe to have people, uh, you know, with guns there. That uh, that if you saw a change in that, that that would be, you know, a huge blow to the Jewish community to say that we can't feel safe except with guns. And and obviously New York City, the the largest uh, amount of Jews live in. I don't know about L.A., uh, but you know Chicago and New York City, where um, guns are, are, are illegal, that there's severe gun restrictions. And, uh, you know, just like Eric Adams right now in Mayer, one of his first things is a, an initiative to get rid of illegal guns. So I, I would assume that the majority of the American Jewish community is not uh, going to, you know, take Republican stances on guns, but it's going to be pushing for uh, gun control. I mean, is, is LA, LA has, I think the, um, second or third largest Jewish community in the United States. 
um, I, I think you do have gun restriction. Uh, I mean, we have some gun control laws, and yes, uh, Jews generally are for gun control, but every every major Jewish institution has armed guards, and in the same way in, in Europe and Australia. So if you want to go to a synagogue for the first time in Australia, you need to register in advance. And so America is increasingly becoming uh, armed. American Jewish institutions are becoming like those in Europe with, with armed guards. Now, do you have armed guards when you get a shul in Detroit? Would you you want armed guards? Do you feel safer with or without armed guards? Um, well, I mean, the local Young Israel for a while had actually retired police officers through the Federation, and they're very expensive. So, I mean, I, I showed you that video of the, uh, you know, God forbid, that transsexual who was filming outside of Chabad and got shot by kind of like a rent-a-cop. So if you're talking about like a... a a retired police officer that's doing security for a synagogue that might charge, um, you know, like a hundred dollars an hour. And, uh, you know, so you might feel pretty safe if you had relatively high level security, someone that's, uh, you know, former police officers that have a connection, they could call, um, you know, work together with the police uh, versus like a $12 an hour, you know, rent a cop, so to say. And so I'm not sure like, like when I was in Brooklyn, um, I don't, the, none of the Jewish institutes I went to had armed security. And even in Manhattan, I don't think any Jewish institutes, I mean, having a gun permit is very difficult in New York. There were some people that had concealed uh, weapons permits, but, but like basically no, no Jewish institute in New York city has armed uh, security because gun control is that strong. You're not expecting an attacker in New York city to have a gun. And uh, you know, if there's a big event, uh, you would have police that were armed and, uh, and in, in Detroit, if you had a big event, uh, you would probably actually have the police. Um, but I would probably feel less safe with armed security if they weren't uh, high level security because, uh, you know, guns are dangerous. Security uh, doesn't really know what they're doing. How do they know, like, who's a regular, who's not? And, and even like if you're going to arm Jews, like, you know, just looking at my congregation, who do I trust with a gun? Um I don't know. I might feel safer with no one with a gun than uh, than uh, people with guns. And and then, like you're saying, this is a new synagogue that, that has budgetary concerns. Um, if you want high level security, it's going to cost you like a thousand dollars every Sabbath. And most synagogues can't afford a thousand dollars every Sabbath. And if you cut cost and have cheap security that that is just, uh, you know, someone with uh, only a high school education that's getting paid ten dollars an hour to stand there. Um, I don't know. I might feel safer without them. And uh, who have you been arguing with? Have you gotten into it with Charles Moskowitz or anybody else over the past uh, few weeks? Yeah, every Thursday with Charles, we, we argue. We actually uh, um, helped book uh, Ryan Dawson. He's going to be on his show Wednesday without me. Um, I I, uh, um, I had the debate with Cultural Thug, who uh, I guess was an old viewer of your show. I'm not sure if that was when you're on Australia on Politically Provoked. And I, I think that was before I booked you. I was on T-Jump, who is kind of like e-atheist. So it was just the pure uh, you know, belief in God versus atheism. And the Church of Entropy, we basically steer clear of politics. So it's mostly uh, theology, mysticism, spirituality. So, uh, you know, Charles Moskowitz, we argue this basically every week, you know, like anti-Semitism, uh, what we should do about it, Israeli politics. And, uh, but, but uh, um, 
I don't know if you agree with my sentiment. You could be on the right, and uh, you know, you keep on like like we argued about the Haredim, and that uh, you know, you know, like that that uh, you know, bad things are going to happen, and the Haredim are going to change direction. And I totally like. I don't think the Haredim are ever going to change direction. Like like God forbid, um, people could start dying horrible things. Uh, we're not going to change direction. And I think in general, also with the American liberal Jewish community, um, most people are just going to double down on what they're doing already. And if bad things, if the strategy doesn't work, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to adopt a different strategy. So I'd say the majority leftist opinion of American Jews um, that, uh, that no, I'd say that, that, that uh, they're going to double down on gun control, double down on censorship, uh, double down on uh, big government and uh, pro you know, probably not the, the measures that right-wing Jews are going to double down on. So if you're a right-wing Jew, you're going to double down on guns. You're going to double down on security. Um, you might double down on, on, uh, on Israel. I just heard the, um, not to change the subject, but that uh, Israel in the paper is like thinking about, uh, you know, God forbid, taking in 75,000 Ukrainian Jews that uh, that uh, what would happen if uh, you know Russia goes to war with the Ukraine and the situation for Jews became untenable and uh, there had to be an exodus of uh, that they estimated 75,000 Ukrainian uh, Jews and so Israel actually right now is uh, preparing for that so something like Zionism um, that like no I, I think I don't think the mainstream American left community is going to double down on uh, Zionism but probably like the people you know are going to double down on Zionism. Now, you you half identify as Haredi. Is that fair? You're you're like kind of one foot in, one foot out. Well, I was basically Haredi, but because I'm a Bolshuva and, and Haredism doesn't really exist where I am at, it's kind of ridiculous to call myself Haredi. I'm, I guess I'm just like a Bolshuva with Haredi leanings. But if I was in New York and Israel, I would probably be, you know, identifying with Haredi. And I went to Haredi schools and I, I learned under. Haredi rabbis, but you know now, fifteen years in Detroit, um, you know even the, and I'm not really that connected with the mainstream black hat Orthodox community, uh, which isn't really quite Haredi. But if there was anything Haredi, it, it'd be the you know the black hat Orthodox uh, community. So it's hard to call myself Haredi like that. So whether Donald Trump is president or Joe Biden is president, either way, does it do you notice any effect on your life? Um. No, I don't think it really makes that much of a difference that, that uh, you know, practically, you know, like if the tax rates change a little bit, it, it makes a difference in the narrative and what people talk about. But to me, that's kind of just like sports. Right. Um, because I've been dressing as a Hasidic Jew for so many years. I'm used to, you know, like kind of crazy people, like, like even maybe like this terrorist uh, that uh, believe in crazy things about the Jews and just kind of blurt it out and talk about you know, like I said, like Adam Green, like one out of four of the people I talk to in Detroit, um, you know, basically have opinions like that and aren't scared to express it. If, you know, someone comes up to an Orthodox Jew and says something to him, some, you'll have a lot of philo-Semitism, but it's a lot of uh, um, beliefs like that. So, uh, but like the narrative is a little bit different if Trump's in office than, uh, than Biden, but a practical difference in terms of like making my living day-to-day -day work or, or policy like no, i don't think it makes any difference i mean do you no i, I don't notice any uh real life uh difference now what about uh COVID? Make, you think you agree that makes a difference in the general narrative 
in right. discussions that you have with people. Right. It's kind of like, like sports. Yeah, it's a rhetorical difference. That's a great analogy. It is It is like sports. Now, what about COVID? Have you ever caught COVID? Thank God, no. I'm still hunkering down. I still basically wear a mask anytime I'm around people. Even like when I'm around my parents, just me and them, I usually have my mask on, especially with case count uh, so high. Um, so thank God I haven't caught it. I don't plan on catching it. Um, you know, and basically I, um, I haven't been vaccinated. So, uh, if something came up like a really good shittick opportunity or, or, you know, some Parnas opportunity, uh, or, or travel opportunity, I, I would probably get vaccinated. I'm not anti-vaccination vaccination like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't have a, a big need to be around people. So I haven't got vaccinated. I haven't got it. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep on managing my properties and, uh, um, you know, doing my eBay business. And I feel relatively safe uh, from COVID. And did you have any reaction to the the January 6th committee? Now, Nick Fuentes has been uh, subpoenaed. So, what, six, seven hundred people have been arrested and, and charged. Uh, how, how serious did you do you view the Capital Six Capital the January six Capitol Hill riot and and uh, what kind of implications do you think this will have for people who supported that kind of behavior um, well I, I think the large segments of former you know patriotic uh, you know America kind of like Bush supporting America um, uh, right-wing America has lost faith in the country. I've lost faith in the country, kind of like Richard Spencer was saying the other day. I don't think America can be saved. Um, you know, it's the decline of empire. What exactly is going to happen? I don't know. So that there will be a certain segment of the, um, I think, you know, like a pratio rule, 80-20, uh, that 20% of the people will uh, support violence and 20% of the people who support violence might actually use violence. And, uh, you know, however you want to give some sort of a statistical heuristic on that, um, like Black Lives Matters or any sort of activism, uh, that I wouldn't be surprised, you know, just like the Jewish community is saying the government can't keep us safe. Uh, you know, we need to arm ourselves and protect ourselves. And that uh, probably tens of millions of people across America feel like that. And uh, it, it could be something leading to future um you know, attempts to overthrow the U.S. government, God forbid. I'm not sure the the way the U.S. government is going about it. Uh, me and Charles were uh, kind of arguing. Like Charles is, I'm not, so, Charles is a big moralizer and like, you know, like insisting that this is bad and convincing people what's good and bad is or who the good guys and bad guys are. So I'm not really a big moralizer and I'm not really, uh, you know, don't think my opinion on who the good guys or bad guys are a uh, matter. Uh, but you're talking about, uh, you know, this action in Texas that uh, this man was not on a no-fly list, saying that like a lot of the people that were on your show that you talked to uh, are more likely to be on a no-fly list than uh, someone like this man who held up the synagogue and had known connections to Islamic extremists. And I was just saying that's my understanding of the U.S. system. It's the spoil system. District attorney uh, is a you know elected position. President gets to appoint the attorney general. And there's a somewhat discretion in who they investigate. So, you know, when the Bush administration um, through Trump uh, was very suspicious of uh, Muslim people and used the government uh, agencies to uh, uh, investigate uh, you know, people from Islamic countries, um, that, that it's the spoil system. 
and if uh, the Biden uh, Harris administration, and you know, I, I think more and more so, is going to be President Harris any any day, any day, um, is going to change that, and, and now currently is using the government to uh, you know white nationalism or uh, you know Trump Trump movements. And uh, that's my understanding, just how the U.S. system works. It's the swirl system. I mean, is that your understanding of how the U.S. political system uh, works and that, you know, like elections have consequences and, and that's just how it works? Is that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd largely agree with you. So I, I myself between the two, two polls, one poll says nothing matters. It doesn't matter who's elected president or who wins an election. And another perspective that has, you know, life and death importance. And I would say elections have moderate importance. And one of the side effects of elections is that it changes the focus for criminal prosecution. Which well, I think that doesn't matter to me directly either. I'm saying, okay, whether white, white, uh, whether the government agencies are going after you know, white nationalists or, or various sorts or Islamists doesn't make that much of a difference to me. Right. But I was saying that, that the government factually now is using its resources to go after um, you know, whites. And uh, but but I don't think that has a practical day to day implication. I mean, you know, besides that, me and you have maybe spoken to some of these people on the internet, like uh, you know, that may now be on a no fly list, and you know, the likelihood of uh, an Islamicist that would no longer be investigated by the government and might uh, conduct some sort of anti Semitic terror, or the likelihood that some you know white uh, extremist uh, that previously would have tried to uh, do something harmful to the Jewish community but now the government is going to protect us. Um, I, I don't think either one of those are, are, are all that likely, or, or at least in the immediate situation that, uh, that uh, but, but it's just the direction of the larger policy in America. And uh, what about the herb? Are you still uh, staying free of marijuana or are you back to it? No, thank God. Um, I, I, I smoked a little over sukkah. So about like a month and a half before, two months before sukkah, I didn't use any. I used a little bit over sukkah, and then I haven't used it all. And I, um, um, I, I, what I had left in my supplies, I finished on sukkah. So I, I think I'll probably, you know, God willing, I'll never use it again the rest of my life. You know, like with COVID nineteen, maybe if I was in a social situation, that and people were using, I'm not sure, but but uh, you know, as as it is now, I don't plan on using it again. And uh, you, you know, like I'm already middle aged, so I, I could see uh, I don't I don't want to uh, you know detriment my health. And, uh, you know, so when I was younger, maybe the, the health the detriments were, were more minimal. Uh, but, uh, you know, also, uh, you know, a, a chance of getting married, having up a family or taking my life more seriously. I don't want to be a, you know, a, a smoking pot the rest of my life. So it was a good time to quit. And uh, what about mushrooms? Have you ever done mushrooms or is that something that interests you? No, I, mean, I tried them once like uh, 15 years ago and uh, I don't think I'll ever try them again. It was an experience, experience like a you know mental experience. I'm not necessarily upset that I tried it. Nothing bad happened, you know, to me for trying it. But uh, no, I have no intention of uh, trying trying that again or, or any drug really. I, I um, you know I, I'd use cocaine re free, you know regularly for even to more than a year, uh, you know, in my twenties. But uh, I, I don't plan on using any drugs ever again. You know, there were certain reasons I used them when I was younger. It was probably a larger mistake. I'd probably be better if I hadn't, but it was the situation I was in. And, uh, you know, a lot of the experiences and things I did, like party promoting or, or just being familiar with party culture or, or what's really going on in Manhattan and various things, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to experience that without using drugs. 
Okay, and what are the effects of, of being offered? How, how, how do you feel? Um, I, I feel better. I feel more healthy. I feel like I study more. My concentration's higher. Um, you know, my ability, I've went back to studying things like mathematics and, and my ability to work with like equations and uh, abstract symbols has uh, increased the, the amount of time I read or concentrate has, uh, you know, definitely increased. If there was a period where maybe, um, you know, weed made me less irritable or, or you know, like the, uh, an appeasement to getting angry. Um, but, but I think generally I'm not such an angry person. And, uh, and I don't think there's a big difference that, uh, you know, maybe if I was in public or had like a public uh, spasm of somebody that, uh, you know, weed would have some sort of effect in appeasing that. But I, I think I could overcome I'm not, you know, that angry of a person. And if I did have problems with anger, I don't think I need a weed to overcome it. Uh, can you hold down the show for a couple of minutes? Maybe talk about books you've been reading while I take a quick break. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, I actually have a guest on my program tonight, 11 o'clock from India, an expert on Vedic uh, science and cosmology that may not be too interesting to your audience. So let me talk about the Texas situation and why I think this rabbi Incompetent is a strong word, uh, but uh, you know from from what the rabbi says, I, I looked. Colleyville uh, is a new suburban development that's like ninety eight percent white, and um, from the rabbi's story, like this guy spent like a week in a homeless shelter. This guy came on foot to the synagogue in an area where like there are no people on foot. Like it, you know, it's a suburb that's built for cars. It's a 98% white uh, area, and also just the interest of uh, reform is kind of dead. So it's interesting that uh, this is a new reform congregation built in the last few decades in a new suburb that's largely white, and, and possibly also the connection that reform is somewhat of an assimilation to white, that reform Judaism is the best way uh, that American Jews have assimilated into white culture. But from the rabbi's story, the guy comes to the, and, and, you know, give the rabbi the benefit of the doubt, but just in terms of security, the guy comes to the door and uh, um, has bags with him and asks if the rabbi takes in homeless people. And then he asked the rabbi, uh, the rabbi asked him like basic questions, like, who are you and where do you come from? And the guy couldn't give a clear answer. And so the rabbi, you, you know, like in the story, he says, like, he says, well, he gave answers that didn't make sense, but that's not so strange. So I'm thinking, well, well, yeah, that is kind of strange, like a, a simple question. And I know I've done security in place that, you know, like, uh, I'm not like officially like a security guard, but even the downtown synagogue, like working with the liberal Jews there, um, it, it was tough to work with, you know, some people and, and just the basic question, like, who are you and where do you come from? That if this guy couldn't answer the question and he had bags with him, um, I would have kept an eye on him. And I remember in the downtown synagogue a few times we had someone like that. And I was like, you know, like, I don't know who this guy is. His story doesn't add up. Keep an eye on him. And in kind of like the liberal Jews there looked at me as like, I think there's something wrong with you, not with him. And so I could picture this rabbi being, you know, kind of like that yeah. where, where, but, but they say like, it has to be incompetence. Like the guy came in, in a suburban area where everyone's with cars it's a 98% white area and he can't give a clear answer to the question of who are you and where are you from? And so with that, like just basic security, you're going to let him in. You say like, well, keep an eye on him, you know, tell someone there to be like, well, um, you know, I want to be a nice guy and, and, and feed this guy. He might be homeless or need help. 
uh, but you know like his story didn't add up keep an eye on him and you know so like in the local young israel they, like there's no way or like or yeah. that they wouldn't have let him in or someone yeah. would have kept an eye on him so you know just kind of let incompetence that that he let the guy in who was clearly out of place like a suburban place where, where like right. everybody's in car and everybody's largely right. white and you have this middle eastern guy homeless on foot when there's like you know no homeless shelter for miles and uh, and then he can't yeah, even orth answer orthodox. a simple question like who are you and where are you from and then he doesn't even have like one of the other guys oh like okay we'll let you in but like keep an eye on him so yeah. like i had to say like this guy was incompetent and then yeah. he said he took the adl training and i was yeah. like the adl training must be worthless and then even violence like i've had some training in mar martial arts and like I think I would have been able to disarm this guy. Like he might've shot me, God forbid the guns, guns, a very good weapon, but like 10 hours, I think I would have taken this guy's gun. Like, like there's no way like 10 hours, just one guy with a handgun that like, and like, like he didn't tie him up or anything. Um, you know, like God forbid if he was a real terrorist or something, he would have tied them up. Um, but like, no, I don't think, I mean, call the rabbi a hero. Um, like God forbid you judge him favorably, but no, I think he was incompetent. Yeah, and, hang, uh, hang on, hang on. Yeah, so Orthodox Jews in general have have much less, have much much fewer scruples about uh, excluding people, right? So the, the the liberal this was a reform synagogue, so the reform uh, much more welcoming, like to the homeless. Oh, he needs to be cold. Needs to you know he's cold. He needs to get warmed up. But Orthodox Jew, Orthodox Jews in general, Orthodox synagogues in general have uh, m much less compunction about excluding people. Well, just like a, an incompetence. You're saying yeah. like uh, that, that if someone comes into the synagogue and can't answer a simple question, like, who are you and where are you from? Well, I mean, I could say like Luke, like, okay, you could be embarrassed. You go into a synagogue and you're like, okay, like I'm a convert. I'm from another country. I've been kicked out of synagogues before. Uh, but like a simple question, like, who are you and where are you from? Like, you can't even answer that question in a place where like, you're like, why would this guy be coming and I'm just like to expect the guy was going to have a gun or commit a terrorist right. act, but it, it should have, uh, you know, send a, a thing right. to like, right. like right. keep right. an eye yeah. on this guy, have yeah. someone in the synagogue, like keep an eye on this guy. Yeah. Like, I don't know who he is and he couldn't well, even. Once you let them in, once you let them in, it's, it's a, it's a big problem. Even keeping an eye, so you, you don't, you don't let someone in like that. And the rabbi claimed his training saved his life, but what about the training training to be so suspicious of some weird guy with a British accent that, that isn't Jewish. Absolutely. And, in general, I think Orthodox Jews have much less compunction about excluding. I think if you talk to Orthodox Jews, like what's the point of kosher or what's the purpose of kosher or what's one of the benefits of kosher, and that is it excludes non-Jews and increases your contact with, with Jews. If you're keeping kosher, it restricts your ability to eat with non-Jews and it increases your likelihood of eating with Jews. So the whole system of Orthodox Judaism in large part revolves around excluding people who aren't Orthodox Jews so that you can have a, a safe and holy community. Well, no, I mean, I, cause like I've done security saying like, we don't really like it. And like, we, you don't really kick people out of synagogues, like even homeless people, even non-Jews uh, that come into a synagogue and saying like, no, I was their line of defense. Like I was the half Jew and like, they would have sat the guy next to me. And so it's like, God forbid, if he attacked, like I would have been the first line of defense. Well, once you and, let him in the door, I mean, letting someone in the door who you don't know who he is and who clearly doesn't belong. I mean, even keeping an eye on him, it's it's often just too late once you once you let the, the guy in the door. That was just a no, major, no, I mean, major mistake. I mean, well, I mean, maybe you don't have a background in violence or, or martial arts. Or yeah, security. I do. And you don't allow people in the in the door that you don't know who they are at a Jewish institution. Uh, keeping an eye on them 
is not nearly as good as excluding them from your synagogue in the first place. Well, I, well, I'm saying that that you could sit them in a place. But I think uh, that you can't necessarily always exclude people, even by law. Um, yes, yeah, so a synagogue can exclude anyone. Well, like well may, private... maybe in the current security, but I'm saying like, no, I mean, we let crazy people. Like I've been in synagogues, we let crazy people in, and it's saying we sat them where there where there was an eye on them. And like, okay, in New York, there wasn't likely that someone would have a gun or even in Detroit, like people have guns, homeless people in Detroit would have guns. And it's saying like, no, I would have had to sit next to this guy. I, I would have had to sit in a place. So if it was a situation like that, uh, you're saying like, no, someone would have had to uh, made a point to have their eye on this guy at all times. And then even the point that if he did have a gun, that uh, that that there would have been someone like me that would have uh, would have uh, tried to disarm him. And, and it's and crazy so, they didn't search him. Like you, ne you, ne you never know, let you, you a stranger into somebody. your. You never let a stranger into a synagogue without searching the person, searching his bag. I mean, the guy brought a gun into the synagogue. I mean, that's crazy that they didn't search him. Nah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you can't. All, I mean, God forbid. Like I said, like I, like I, like I knew cocaine dealers and and uh, you you know like uh, regular not not talking synagogue, but like dangerous people party promotion. You can't always get away with uh, searching people and so um if you have people that are good at violence you basically have to have someone who's good at violence um with the eye on the person that if the person acts up that the person who's good at violence is going to be able to immediately handle something uh you know even think like a porn set or something or, or like a party in la not talking like a synagogue you sometimes got to let people in uh, like sometimes you can frisk and search people but you can't always search it, it, and just saying that uh um, you know, whatever the case is of how it should have been done, like, like certainly this rabbi was incompetent in, in that sense. And whatever security training he had was largely, uh, worthless from, from, you know, just from what he himself said that he couldn't even give a, you know, just to, like he admitted, uh, that, uh, he let the guy in, that he had bags with him. Like he came on said that the guy had bags with him. Like, like he clearly could have had a weapon and, uh, and then, and then he, um, you know, said he uh, he he put his back to him. He did that. He gave a story that didn't add up. I mean, there's so many different points where you say, okay, just don't let the guy in. But once you let the guy in, and he tells you a story that doesn't make sense, he can't even explain like who the hell he is and where the hell is he from. Uh, you, you know, that'd be pretty weird if your local synagogue you decide to let the guy in. They're like, who are you? Where are you from? Okay, yeah, you made that you made that point. But I, another thing I noticed, and then is putting your back to him, and then the third point to take your eye off the guy. You know, so it's saying that there's three levels of security okay. breaches, letting him in, um, you know, fail, you're recognizing his story doesn't add up and then uh, not keeping your eye on him. OK, I, I'm going to move on. Uh, good to see you and talk to you again. Uh, David, uh, any any final words for this evening? Yeah, welcome back. Good to have you back. Oh, did you want to talk briefly about uh, this kind of like base takes politically provoked uh, like, uh, you know, thing, possibly doxing and drama? Or I don't know if you followed that. Or if that yeah, was I saw a little bit. So some drama between base takes and, and politically provoked. Um, I don't have any strong opinion, but how about you? Well, I'm not moralizing on it, but I thought it was interesting and, and kind of, uh, you know, like one thing that Norvin would come back, like I think base takes stream for months with uh, OV and then OV and Norvin would kind of come back as stars where they're on politically provoked and they're like some of the most popular guests and uh, base takes wants to come on and be part of part of it. And uh, they're, they're worried that he's a doxer 
and from their perspective, like doxing uh, goes over the over the line. That uh, you know, even if uh, you know Norvin and Ov are are, are you know, Nazis calling for horrible things about Jews, that uh, at least they're not doxers. And whether whether you know Mike is a a doxer or not is unclear. But uh, there was that uh, uh, speculation. And then he kind of becomes like a born again uh, anti semitism, like like he's crusading against them because they're platforming anti semites. So it seemed a, a little, uh, I, I guess, unclear. I'm not sure if that was your read. If it was kind of you know, like uh, is base takes like like secretly on the payroll of the ADL, or or was he just kind of burnt that you know here it is he spent all this time talking with Norvin and Ov, and then they're kind of like brought back into the limelight and he's being excluded. Um, so it, it was a little bit interesting and then politically provoked, are they kind of doing what, uh, um, you know, Kevin Michael Grace used to accuse you of doing, uh, you know, we kept on wanting to talk about like Richard Spencer, that like narrow casting where they're getting an audience cause they're taught cause they've, uh, narrow casted themselves and, uh, you, you know, that they don't necessarily have a whole bunch of substance, but by platforming or, or taking this, uh, specific view that they've been able to create a little niche, maybe it makes some money. Uh, for that. And, uh, you know, obviously they're going to promote themselves as being, uh, you know, fair and equal platforming everybody. But in reality, they're probably doing what's in their own self-interest. So like, you know, Luke, you may have been more honest about that. Like you, you do what makes you happy or, you know, for your program. Uh, but like, yeah, it makes sense to me that they're going to say that they're a neutral, fl- fair platform that just has debates, but at the same time have some kind of cold calculated uh, benefit situation. But I, I thought that was a little bit random because it was all people formally on your show. And I guess, you know, I booked you for that show and then you had that guy, um, uh, the, you know, the Oxford PhD student the other day on, um, you know, so I thought that was a little bit interesting and maybe you agree that doxing goes across the line that even like you're a Jew, you're worried about the security of Jews. Um, but like, you know, Norvin or OV, uh, however uh, despicable their ideas might be that, uh, doxing crosses the line and even if base takes uh rejects that he doxed that there's enough uh question that he's a doxer i don't know if you if uh you know th- th- i guess those were my thoughts i'm not sure if you had any comment on yeah that i you... listened to some of base takes videos and about the falling out with politically provoked and uh after about 15 minutes i just couldn't couldn't care less about the the feud it's when when you're, you're dealing with the, the cesspool that uh, politically provoked is often dealing in, in they're, they're trying to get the most uh, compelling content, but it's often uh, the most juvenile and, and stupid and antisocial. And so politically provoked is dealing with a lot of, you know, antisocial people. And so, you know, they're all, they're all kind of firing off each other. And, and uh, after a few minutes, I thought, ah, just, don't want anything to, to do with all this. I don't like doxing, um, but I, I don't like much of the the low IQ conversation that uh, politically provoked is uh, hosting as well. Yeah, I mean, so that like that that's their karma, so to say, that someone like base takes would turn against them and become a crusader against them. I think it's ironic that it's him that did it, but I guess it's not surprising. And uh, and, and kind of like the um, you know honor among thieves, so to say that. Uh, you, you know, that uh, if you're going to make a hard line, like, you know, like no doxing and like, you know, all of this is okay, but doxing and, and like, I don't support doxing either. Uh, but, but it's hard to, you know, like, I don't, you can't really, um, 
expect to not get doxxed or that people aren't going to dox. So, uh, but but I, I thought that was a little bit interesting that, uh, and I think Politically Provoked is uh, probably one of the bigger platforms that, I mean, Richard Spencer is going to be on again this week and uh, and they had Eric Stryker. Eric Stryker showed his face for an interview and they had uh, these guys from Australia, uh, you know, big names uh, like Thomas Sewell and uh, other, other people. I didn't heard of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I think they have became, uh, you know, a little bit, they're kind of like the new heel turn which is ironic, yeah. ironic that yeah. they have like a half Jewish uh, uh, host and a black host and, and like a Polish uh, liberal. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic that they're the, you know, the new base for having all these conversations. Yes. Yes. They've, uh, they're the new blood spots. Okay. So uh, take care. You. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. And, uh, Thanks, David. you know, hopefully we'll be in touch again. Yep. Absolutely. Take care. David, let's get back to. They care about this. If they don't like you, uh, if they don't uh, care for Richard Spencer or some of the other defendants, uh, is there something bigger than that? I know you've talked about it already uh, in your first answer, uh, but uh, what would be the reason to care about it if they didn't care about you? Right. You don't. You don't have to care about me. I mean, the the fact that this this case. I mean, according to the words of Roberta Kaplan herself, uh, this was about crushing the then you know fledgling alt right movement. Um, it can be used absolutely against you if you want to engage in any form of activism that is public and bold and that is going to attract people. Now, I think that Charlottesville... Guess what? You can engage in activism that is public and bold and attracts people and not get sued, right? You can engage in activism and not break the law and activism that doesn't bring down criminal and civil charges, right? But you have to have to use some some discretion, right? You have to... You have to build an event and build a community that appeals to the best in people, not the worst. And and Richard has largely appealed to the worst in people. So looking at the chat, Art Bell says, Dick Fuentes was speaking in live stream super chat stunt mode. Yes, he was trapped in that mode like a robot in real life. Crowds get amped up. You know, they, they talk big and it leads to trouble. Yes, the internet is real life. The internet is separate from real life. And so when you... When you allow the the overstatement and, and the visceral talk, the provocative talk, the compelling talk that uh, captures an audience, right? You allow yourself to to fall into that. You can't then segregate it into just one part of your life, all right? It's the perils of the personality that infects more and more of your life. It interferes with your ability to have regular conversations with regular people. So, when people go online, they immediately become more compulsive. Uh, more combative, more self-centered, narcissistic, grandiose. They tend to have, you know, delusions about their their own influence and power and ability, and they tend to share things that they wouldn't normally share with people face to face. They they tend to get much darker. Right? These are all the impulses that that start flowing upon people when they go online, and many people can't handle it. So many people, their online life infects and destroys their real life. Right? People make some edgy tweets, and they get fired, even if they think they have tenure. Richard Spencer says, 50-50 for sedition charges against Nick Fuentes and conviction. Nick Fuentes is hooked on Super Chat seeking stunts. Yes, The Perils of the E-Personality. Terrific book. He needs Luke's 12 steps morning phone calls daily. Rabbi claimed his training saved his life, but what about training to be suspicious of weird, you know, non-Jewish people who just say they want to come in and get warm? Yeah, there, there's no security training that 
it would say, let him in. Richard Spencer, Nick Fuentes, and DSP. Who's DSP? Have personality disorders. East celebrities who live off the pay me and we win against the enemy. Help me win the culture war sales pitch. The January 6th speakers were generally grifters. Says Art Bell. And the chat says, show me a world leader who, who didn't have a personality disorder. These right-leaning chaps with big heads are a hot seller. Yes, there, there's an enormous audience for a, a right-wing perspective on the world that is not allowed in the mainstream media. So if you can say something that's, that's more edgy than what will be allowed on Fox News, there's an enormous audience that wants to hear what you have to say. The right needs better leaders and better gatekeepers like the social justice warriors have. They need a test for psychopathy, says the chat. Yeah, when, when you see a guy trying to come into your synagogue and he's dressed in homeless-looking sweatpants and uh, he's Middle Eastern and uh, obviously not from around there and not Jewish, you probably should not let the person in. Yeah, no modern Orthodox Jew or no Orthodox Jew is going to just let that guy in. So yeah, the Orthodox have much less trouble about excluding people. And I noticed that many of the rabbis and synagogues who make a big deal about helping the homeless, then their, their congregations then often get inundated by homeless who set up camp at the synagogue. Dennis says, I have nothing against doxing, free speech, and the marketplace of ideas and liberal concepts that go back to enlightenment follies. Richard Spencer did the kill stream with Mr. Girl, an oddball. I hate when these guys asking questions of Richard are slow and wandering and speak too much. Luke's voice is heard saying, I want to hear Richard only. I never heard of uh, Mr. Mr. Girl. Ethan Ralph looks bloated. 250 pounds and 5'5". Five five. There's the chat. Open the door, open the door, and let them in. I don't let them in. Head of security says Laponia. Back to Richard here, speaking on Ethan Ralph. It was a disaster on many ways. Um, I don't go out of my way to denounce Charlottesville because I, I find a lot of that stuff to be um, very, very poisonous. And it's a, it's a way it is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There were good things about that. There were, there were a lot of good intentions. There were good people. Um, and I think just getting into this kind of Charlottesville obsession is absolutely wrong. But there were a lot of bad people and there were a lot of... There are good people on both sides. Yeah, when, when the overwhelming result of, of an event is horrible, is effectively terminal for your cause, it, it seems weird to, to spend much time talking about the good motives of people involved. It, it's like talking about the, the good motives of the Dallas Cowboys when they got crushed by the San Francisco 49ers. 10 days ago. Decisions that could have been better on the part of the organizer. Um, and there are also things that were... How about decisions you could have made that would have been better? Right, so what's the, what's the English language version? Of, oh, hail our people. So Richard is, is walking around Sunday morning at Charlottesville, uh, drinking hard liquor and saying, hail our people, and uh, effectively seek hailing with people. Maybe, maybe those weren't such good decisions. Or it could not have been foreseen. And to be fair, so I, I think it's something that I've learned a lot from. Uh, it, it has absolutely affected me and so on. But in terms of the lawsuit, I mean, yeah, you want to like, you hate Richard Spencer, so this is all funny or whatever. Well, I mean, that, that sounds like a, a really destructive, nihilistic 
attitude. Um, if, if this kind of precedent is set where in 1980, sections 1985 and 1986 are just used as this Damocletian sword holding, you know, hanging over everyone's head, um, you're not going to be able to do any form of activism. Maybe you don't want to. Yeah, well, those sections weren't hit, held up, all right? He's saying you'll never be able to do any form of activism. Yeah, you can do activism with intelligence and good judgment, all right? You can do activism that, that appeals to people who are going to be responsible citizens, not criminally inclined. So what's consistently destroyed any chances of white nationalists gaining traction is that that most of the people who are attracted to the cause are of such low quality. Okay, fine. But like, this is absolutely a way of using the court system as politics by other means. The court system is being used as politics by, by other means for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Whatever verdict the Charlottesville jury was going to come down was not going to affect that you know that is what this is about I mean yeah there's a lot of technical issues there's there's evidence there's arguments etc but like at the end of the day it is about using the court system as politics by other means like it seems like some people would yeah people will fight you know whatever approach is effective right you infuriate enough powerful influential affluent people they will fight you every which way that is effective to restrict you. And so this, this trial took an enormous toll on Richard Spencer and I think all the defendants. It distracted them. And uh, there's not a lot of introspection here about what I, Richard, did that, that brought about this unfortunate result. I care about that. But. Well, I definitely do understand uh, not liking somebody enough that you would root for things like that. Well, it, it's hard. Why would anyone root for Richard Spencer when he doesn't even root for himself? Right? I mean, he's, he puts his self-aggrandizement first, but he makes such terrible decisions that, that destroy his own welfare. So if Richard's not going to take uh, care of himself, why would he expect other people to take care for him? He's got this suicidal wish for fame, and, and the fame has almost killed him. And, and he talks about that after Hailgate. He says it almost destroyed him. Well, Richard Spencer initiated Hailgate, but he couldn't quite handle the blowback. So maybe don't do things that you can't handle when they are publicized. Maybe speak in a way to a group that you would be all right if uh, a recording was made public. Richard is all vengeful that someone recorded him after Charlottesville, but Richard wasn't speaking privately after Charlottesville. He was speaking to a group. So maybe don't orate to a group of you know more than a dozen people if, if you would not want this heard by the world. To happen. Uh, but I would say, you know what I mean? Like, I don't like to. Uh, but uh, I would say yeah. in this case, a little short-sighted, um, especially since they're basically looking for ways to put us all in jail uh, and bankrupt us all, if you want to know the truth about it. Um, and I know a lot of people don't like what Richard's been saying in the last year or two, uh, but it doesn't stop them from trying to fuck with him either, right? They're not looking to put everyone in jail. They're looking to put certain people who are being particularly obnoxious in jail. Right, you know what I mean? Like, they're still trying to, they're still trying to bankrupt him. They're still trying to fuck with him over right. some shit from 2017, right? It doesn't matter um, about any of the stuff he said about Biden or the vax or anything else. They're still fucking with this guy. And if you get in their crosshairs, they're going to fuck with you too uh, for the yeah, rest of your look, life. look, my, the Biden stuff, th that was not an attempt to, like, appeal to the plaintiffs. If it were, it didn't work in the slightest bit. Like, I call things as I see them, and I march to the beat of my own drummer. I think you recognize that, whether you agree with me or not. Um, so it, it's, they will, if they see you as some kind of major threat they're going to go after you this case could have very easily been natalie romero v james fields that is someone who was clearly injured now natalie romero um was an activist of some kind kind of a casual one i would say but she was absolutely injured in the car incident and she did not deserve to be injured 
That is a f- absolutely fair statement. That could have been the case. That is a open and shut, completely legitimate, and in a way, apolitical use of the civil court system. It wasn't that. It was basically an attempt to say that, you know, not only was there James Fields, but, you know, Spencer's bold talk about, you know, this is an historic victory. We're taking the streets and, you know, we're the new rights. We're going to take over. That stuff led to her. Yeah, so Richard was giving speeches about how the the alt-right was going to take over America, right? That kind of speech provokes the type of reaction that he is now complaining about, right? He doesn't get that the the lawsuit and the tremendous opposition to him has all been engendered by his own choices, his own words, his own public speeches, speeches, right? His own agenda has brought about a massive backlash, her injuries in a kind of malign conspiracy. That is a really dangerous way of arguing, and that can absolutely be used in all sorts of bad ways. Now, let me see. Um, I think there is... Okay, there are a couple. DD12, this one I missed. DD12 sent $10. Hopefully the retrial for those two deadlocked charges is immediately dismissed. I wish all the guys in the trial well and hope the monetary liability hasn't affected messed with them mentally too much. Yeah, and I don't want to go full feels or whatever here, but um, it sounds like they really put you guys through the meat grinder. Um, and this is just what we've seen since it's been publicized a lot the last couple of months, you know, while the trial was getting ready to happen and then what happened and now you're here mm-hmm. after. Um, you know, I've been through my own legal stuff and still I am going through some stuff uh, not related to political activism. Uh, but uh, I know how I can wear on you. Uh, let's just put it that way. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's not, it's not easy. Uh, if you hurt people, right, people are going to retaliate, right? It's not necessarily going to be in the form of a lawsuit. If you're going about hurting and unnecessarily, gratuitously, viciously offending and devastating people, they are going to retaliate. It may take the form of a lawsuit. It may take the form of a punch. It may take the form of getting you fired. Uh, especially something like this that's getting everyday media attention and stuff. They're taking pictures of you outside the court, of course, uh, stuff like that. Like, what was, what was it like, I guess, from that perspective? Well, it wasn't quite the circus that I expected. So when I first got there, I, I was actually staying um, like an hour outside of Charlottesville because I, I, I kind of prepared for the worst. I thought it was just, you know, you would have to like burst through Antifa to get into the courtroom. And then there's going to be like a replay of Charlottesville and maybe future lawsuits. You know, it was not like that. Right. It was not the media circus that I, I expected. And I think that was good. Um, also, the, you know, you could listen into the trial, but you had to kind of actively follow a link. It was a, a bit like the Maxwell trial going on now. It's, it's not really that public. Um, I, I think Charlottesville also is kind of in the rearview mirror. Um, to a degree, particularly after January 6th. So that kind of lessened uh, the burden of it, uh, I guess, a little bit. But um, yeah, but I, again, I, that, that's just to put everything into perspective. I mean, look, you you go through the discovery process, you go into court, you go into court up against very tough and smart lawyers who want to defeat you. You know, they're going to dissect you and lay you bare. I mean, it, it's, I, you know, I, if I could brag a little bit, look, weaker people would be crushed by it. They, they just couldn't take it. Normal people, what, what do you fear most? Your, you know, internet search history being published? Well, it wasn't quite that, but it was a lot like that, actually. Uh, your worst moments uh, being amplified in a trial where a jury really decides your fate. It, it is stressful as hell. I mean, it, yeah. Now, what do, you, um, what do you think about Kessler? You know, I'm invincible. Because I, I know Kessler. He's been on the show. We actually had him on the show during the trial. Uh, yeah. And um, he had some things to say. So I'll let you, if you want to respond or say anything to him. I don't remember exactly what he said. It wasn't flattering towards you, though. And, and made Oh, no. Comments. Kessler clearly hates me. Um, I, you know, I don't know what to say about Kessler. I, my, my view of him... This is the guy who organized the, pro, the Charlottesville protest, by the way. He was credited. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, my, my view of him has, has, has shifted a lot. I mean, I never really knew him. And I, I don't think I could even say who he is. I mean, if someone asked me, what does Jason Kessler believe in? Like, does he have an, a core view of the world. I, I don't think I could tell you what it is. Um, and I think, you know, even my haters, I, I think they would. Okay. So Jason Kessler was the organizer of this march. You didn't look into him. You didn't do some investigation. You're saying you, you know nothing about him, but you chose to be the headline speaker for his event. 
they could probably explain, you know, a little bit how I go about things, like how I think about things, whether they agree with me or not. Um, Kessler uh, was obsessively tweeting during the trial, which is absolutely stupid. And um, he was openly saying, uh, I'm going to have to throw Spencer under the bus in order to beat the rap. I mean, that's a direct quote. Um, I think he said he, you threw him under the bus be, too on, or something. Try to claim that. I forget what the tweet was. I have to go back and pull it up. But he was saying well, his argument. I mean, this is public knowledge, so I, I can I can talk about it. I mean, this happened in the trial. His argument basically was that he wanted a good rally and all of these terrible people took the rally away from him. And so basically anything that happened that was right. good was Tim. Anything that happened that was bad was Spencer working through Eli Klein is was effectively what he was claiming. Um, he didn't cite any evidence for this or present this when he had ample opportunity to. He just kind of said it, asserted it. And um, so there were these just kind of very weird situations. Um, one of them was in cross-examination um, with me and I guess with Miss um, Dunn, who, who cross-examined him, where uh, he would say like, oh, in this photo, this is when the, the rally was taken away from me. Or something. And it's just a very weird thing. It's, it, you, un, like, like, I don't think I am liable for the injury suffered by some of the plaintiffs. Um, that being said, it's... So I invite guests on my show, and theoretically, any any day, any moment, they could take the show away from me. It's then up to me to eject them, right, and not to not to start events or not to start shows that I can't control. At some point, you do have to take responsibility for something. No, you shouldn't take responsibility for something that's not yours, but you have to take responsibility for what's yours. And you have to try to learn from something and say, well, all right, this doesn't work. That was a good decision. That was a really bad decision. We couldn't have foreseen that, but we now, we now can foresee that. You have to treat it like that. If you're treating it simply as I am innocent, I am a good person and an innocent victim, then you can't learn anything and you can't really say anything about the trial. And that is my impression of Kessler. Kessler claimed that from the moment he met me, he knew that I was a narcissistic sociopath <laughs> and just, you know, it's like, well, why are you inviting me to the event? Why did you, as we so Richard just made a long harangue there about the importance of taking responsibility. Well, I haven't heard much responsibility taking by, by Richard. It was revealed at trial, actively invite the Nationalist Socialist Alliance, or the, the I forgot what they were called, the, something, the, National, the National Front. Why did you actively invite them? Why were you uh, actually walking in with them? Why, why did you do that, if that is your view? You, the evidence is contradicting what you're saying. He said that I was this evil person. Um, as I revealed in cross-examination, he invited me to attend his Charlottesville 3.0 rally in 2018. I didn't. And I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I, I didn't. It just wasn't worth it. So you're talking about a lot of... A lot of people here who are antisocial and unable to maintain ties with people and who under stress lash out at themselves and lash out at other people. Uh, the market maturity is how much stress you, you can endure without lashing out at others or yourself. Worth it. I didn't trust him and I didn't want to do it. Whatever. Maybe I was right. Maybe I was wrong. Who cares? But after that event, he texted back to me as was revealed in the trial. Eat my dust, you jealous bitch. Well, this, this doesn't really seem like someone who wants to work with me or wants has my best interest at heart. This doesn't seem like someone who's really taking responsibility. It seems like... So whose best interest does Richard have at heart aside from his own? And he doesn't seem so removed from reality. He clearly doesn't even have his own interests, best interests at heart. Uh, who, who is, whose best interest does Richard really have at heart? Someone who's playing a victim. And I mean, another case that was, this never happened. So, and I'm glad that it never happened, but he was talking about finding a Richard Spencer impersonator and <laughs> announcing that to Antifa and they would all meet up at a bar and get in a fight. <laughs> now, that's just bonkers. Now, he never did it to his credit, I guess, but, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's not good. And 
I, I think at the end of the day, it's like a Vince McMahon idea, there isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, there, there are better arguments that could be made for that, for for why he should not be liable and why people should actually care about this case. There are better arguments than you know Richard Spencer's evil. I mean, look, I'm I'm a whipping boy in the alt right. Most of the alt right hates me or whatever. Fine, I don't care. Like I'm not. I what did they say when they go on the Survivor show? I didn't come here to make friends. Um, you know, I'm interested in ideas. I speak my mind. You can take it or leave it. It's up to you. But there are just better arguments that can be made. And to be honest, um, I feel like I didn't fully understand what Charlottesville was really about. In the sense that I had done all of these great events. Um, Texas A&M, Auburn, where, you know, no lawsuits emerged from those. Um, yeah, there were scuffles. Antifa would show up. Antifa is toxic, you know, yes. But things were going well. Um, the innovation that Kessler uh, brought about is there right in the name, Unite the Right. It was about bringing in everyone. And he was, again, he was the point man for bringing in the National Socialist Movement and Jess Shook and all of these guys. Well, I understand why you would want to do that. It, you know, uh, Jeff Scoop is the pronunciation, and I just did an interview with Jeff on Friday. More people, but you know, you're 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 changing the nature of what this is. What this is, and again, I was not informed of this stuff. I was not involved in the Discord server where the Charlottesville rally was um, uh, was uh, organized, and that was testified to by the plaintiff's own expert. Uh, and so, I don't know what to say to him on some level. Right. So any Twitter chat, any Discord server, any Facebook group that you participate in, whatever goes on there you know, has the potential to blow up your life. So you use some good discretion with whom you talk uh, privately and particularly when those co- talks are recorded in a chat. Right. Don't, don't be going on chats where people are looking forward to committing criminal acts. Um, it's just there are better ways of making arguments than trying to demonize someone, particularly when the facts don't back it, back it up. You know, you, you can't cite any evidence for what he's saying. He's just saying it, and it didn't work. <laughs> so why, you know? All right, there we go. I want to give you a chance. I know he, he brought you up, and I saw him mention it, and uh, I'm sure he'll probably come back on at some point too. Uh, so I like to get that here on the record. <laughs> the kill stream is the record. Somebody was, somebody was fucking with me and sent me an email and said, do you want to you get on the record over here on my shitball channel? No, this is the record right here, the kill stream, uh, and that's that's what I'm interested in. All right, now let me turn this on. It's the uh, meet the right, press for the old ride. Uh, yeah, um, so I heard that when you were in your trial, you had the, the Milo clip brought up, um, and then you kind of brought it into context. I was wondering if you could share that context with us. Sure. Well, I, I actually presented the Milo clip as an exhibit in my own defense. And um, the uh, plaintiffs, they were like, oh, he's trying to, I forgot what they said. He's, he's, um, he's, he's trying to immunize to it, you to it, to the jury. They, they did not like that. But basically, the, the Milo clip, as you probably know, it was the I rule the fucking world and, you know, octoroons. It, it was me at a state of just immense frustration. And it was, you know, obviously should never have been um, put out there. It was taken, was uh, recorded without my consent and put out there online to harm me and so on. But I did put it into context. That was not. This is the emphasis for Richard that it was recorded without his consent. He gave a public talk, right? And what he's angry at is that someone recorded it without his content, consent and made it public, right? What about your, your own role here, Richard? Not me giving a speech urging others to go harm anyone. It was me at a, at a point of just utter and complete frustration as the event unfolded. So, uh, you know, I went to Charlottesville that morning with tremendous optimism. I was ready to give a speech. I was ready to, you know, see the crowd and all that kind of stuff. And the uh, state of emergency was called at 12 noon before anyone had given any form of speech. The rally was scuttled before it even got to take place. And we were forced out into Market Street. Uh, Antifa and the alt-right were expelled together, forced, funneled towards each other. And then chaos was unleashed on Charlottesville. I mean, it was the worst possible way for anyone to for any um, municipality or state to uh, have a safe event. And uh, I was in a state of just deep frustration. I learned about Heather Heyer's death, and I could feel that 
this was going to be just have a, I mean, beyond the death itself, it was just going to have a tremendous impact, a terrible impact uh, on the movement, my own career, and so on. And I was just in a state of complete and utter frustration. And that's why I descended into this bombastic rant from hell. And so, you know, you have to take that in context. I was not urging anyone to engage in violence. I was expressing extreme frustration, much like someone, you know, at halftime when you're losing a game. I was not a great athlete, by the way, but I was in many locker rooms during halftime. And when you're getting your butts kicked, you'll say things that are just totally outrageous and stupid and crazy. But you're just, you're venting frustration. And uh, that's what I was doing. I knew that it was a disaster. And so I put it into context, I think, effectively. Um, now, the other aspect of- Whoa, whoa, he, he thinks he's, he, he's effective? In this rant, this is what he thinks is effective. Why would he think this is effective? They don't do this to fucking me. Right. We're gonna fucking. They don't do this to me. That uh, the Charlotte uh, law enforcement reaction. They they it was personal against against Richard and how dare they do this to Richard and and he's he's proud of this rant. So the reason this clip's important is that it is who Richard Spencer is. This is how he thinks, right? This is not unrepresentative of Richard. This is highly representative. And, and he still thinks that speech was effective. That is that um, I asked Kessler under oath who did it. And the person who did it, according to Kessler, and I'd heard this rumor, but I'd never promoted this rumor because I didn't have evidence. But, I mean, Kessler testified under oath that it was um, a man named Dave Riley who uh I, I don't know uh, it's i did they testify that so i'd heard that and i know dave riley uh and i'm I... right so richard's focus here is uh, you know on on who leaked the speech i, I don't think it particularly matters falling short there all right white wolf do you have anything else uh, by the way i like dave <laughs> and i'm sure he'll come back on and, and have his own thing to say about that uh but yeah that was um okay uh, i would be curious i hope you do have him on i would be curious why you're making recordings of people without their consent and then uh edit that's the source of his ire that someone recorded his rant in front of a group of people them and selectively releasing them on the internet um through a according um, to kessler homosexual according to kessler we don't oh, homosexual kessler, we don't, oh my god if he denies it and he has i had heard that too he, i heard that and i like denies it and I'm he sincerely denies it he was talking about oh yeah we talked to the police and we did this and he, he didn't talk to the police and he, they're they're gonna get tough on antifa when we do this all of this was just oh, he's talking here about it all right well thank you man appreciate it Mm. It's, it's not quite because they want to spur people to go to the casinos, right? Uh, in, in Nevada, so it's not quite Anonymous as liberal. Even Mosley Virginia. made the recording and sent it to several people. He then conveniently lost his phone and never complied with. Eli Mosley. That's what somebody said. Mosley oh, so made the recording. Made the as well. the yeah, that's what was just claimed. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe not, old Dave is off the hook. I had not heard that. Uh, and again, I would not put it fucking past. Who that knows guy. who? Yeah, I was gonna say like I don't. Uh, that's why and I say obviously. A and, and remember, Elliot Klein was Richard Spencer's lieutenant for what a year, two years. So, so Richard welcomed him into his inner circle and put him to work. Pathological liar. Well, that's... I mean, he lied to everyone about his valor, to be frank. I mean, in, in a way that you didn't need to. I mean, 
it's one thing if you actually have a military experience, great. Uh, Richard, how come you couldn't tell that something was off with this guy? But you don't need to impress me by that. I mean, I don't look down upon someone who wasn't in the military or something. And um, he lied about a lot of things. I mean, a lot of that came out in the trial. Just this, he would just, um, Cantwell actually played a lot of these um, videos. I was not involved in them at all, so they, they didn't affect me, but they affected Chris. And he would play these videos where he was talking about, oh, yeah, we talked to the police and we did this. And he, he didn't talk to the police. And he, they're, they're going to get tough on Antifa when we do this. All of this was just bullshit. bullshit. It was just this weird uh, kind of sociopathic lying. And uh, those are the primary people who hang around Richard. So why does Richard attract so many sociopaths? Um, and I, I don't know. It, it, I would say this. I mean, I, and I, I think I said this to a degree in the trial. I mean, it, it really does concern me that I was just surrounded by a bunch of weird liars. Yeah, he's concerned. But is he concerned about his own judgment and his own character? Because what does that say about Richard? And they're pathological liars in the sense that it's one thing to like embezzle money from your company or like be a con artist or something. It's another thing to lie when you don't have to. You know, I mean, there, I think there was a joke about Bill Clinton uh, when he was governor of Arkansas that he'll lie when the truth will do. You know, you don't have to lie. Just tell us the truth so that this can be effective. But, but he couldn't do that. And that strikes me as a pathology and not like an. Yeah. And what is it about you, Richard, that attracted so many pathological people? That's what you should think about. And perhaps share about Machiavellian scheme and the the fact that the alt-right attracted these people and that these people would kind of promote themselves and place the crown on their own head so they just come out of the woodwork and say ah yeah richard spencer created an alt-right movement and led it in in the direction of nazism and then he's surprised that a movement in an anglo country in the united states of america that that chooses publicly to align with nazism attracts antisocial people and the antisocial people are going to publicly align with nazism in the United States or in Canada or in England or in Australia or any other country that fought against the Nazis in World War II. So you shaped and directed and shoved a movement into association with Nazism, whereby only antisocial people will then publicly take part in your movement. All right, that's on you, Richard. You created this dynamic that only sociopaths and antisocial people are going to find common cause with you. I'm the new logistics coordinator. I'm going to do this. I'm going to you know, do that. Well, that was a really bad chaotic situation that should never, ever be repeated. Yeah, he was your logistics coordinator, right? He worked for you. And I've definitely learned that lesson. All right. Now, um, and for those who don't know, Mosley, was it Eli Mosley, I think? Yes. Um, and, Eli and, Klein is, Elliot Klein is his actual name. Elliot Klein is his name? Mm-hmm. All right. Correct. Well. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, who knows? Maybe he's lying about that too. But um, that seems a yeah, little... he didn't. No, it's, it's not. A, I know. I'm just talking about but, 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 but he was caught he, out lying, lying by the New York Times, actually. He sat for a fucking interview, I believe, with the New York Times. Or mainstream, yeah. And we covered it on the kill stream at the time. I remember it's 2018. Uh, and we never had him on the show or anything, but he just completely um, self-immolated. Basically, they called him out and called out his well, stolen valor. It's yeah, Antifa are a bunch of nihilists, all right? Not, not terribly pro-social people either. Sustainable. You can't, you know, I, I'm, I'm not defending lying here, but it's like, it's one thing to like lie in your taxes. It's another thing to just endlessly lie about everything. It, it, it can't work. You're, gonna, it, you're, you're just like treading water and slowly sinking under. You're going to drown. You can't lie about literally everything to everyone for no reason. It, it's just going to implode eventually. So it's kind of like, uh, there's a real problem about having people, for a public figure who's the subject of so much obloquy and attention and negative attention, uh, I will give Richard credit that uh, 
he does not seem to be a serial liar. That uh, given his position, he, he seems to come across as reasonably honest. People with these types of pathologies, these borderline personality disorders and sociopathy surrounding everyone and taking the lead at, you know, in, in rallies and stuff like that. Like, that is just totally unworkable. Um, it- and uh, Dennis says in the chat, Richard Spencer makes fun of conservatives for being obsessed with owning the libs, but he's, he, Richard, is obsessed with owning conservatives, the alt-right himself, pure slave morality. Half of Richard's tweets are like, anti-vaxxers are dumb and Macron, Emmanuel Macron, is a great politician. I bet this contrarian take will make conservatives seethe. Does Antifa have many dentists and accountants in their ranks? I would suspect not. It's just, it's scary. No, I don't know. But yeah, he did not comply with discovery, which just means that you're going to get fucked. I think he was in jail at some point. And, you know, yeah, believe it or not, you have to comply with shit to some degree or else you're just in default. And, you know, you, you, you can maybe do that in some circumstances, but like yeah, there's going to be a consequence. And I just feel like he never felt like there was any consequence. Another, I mean, in my opinion, and I actually said this uh, under oath at, at trial, uh, I think Samantha Frillick is a liar. I don't think she's reformed. Now, that's the person. Now, by the way, is that the person? Kessler came on here, and and again, he came on here and alleged that you had a relationship with her, if that's the one I'm thinking about. Oh, yeah, Uh, I slept with her. Yeah, okay, all right, well. (laughs) (laughs) I slept with her hours after I met her. I mean, um, so I never had a relationship with her that was of any seriousness, (laughs) but um, she, yeah, she was just a kind of clearly ambitious girl, and um, I wouldn't say that, by the way, if if that was actually in trial. That was in her deposition, so that's why I'm saying it. I don't kiss and tell in other circumstances. I see but, some other things we mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I've heard some other things too. But anyway, well, but you know, who was she? What, did she actually, she totally mischaracterized me in her deposition. So it wasn't testimony. I had no opportunity to cross-examine her. So she totally mischaracterized me um, and other things. She's now like part of some grift operation, like anti-racist activist group. So I, I you know, I'm not certain about those things. That's just my gut feeling. I don't think she believes in anything. I just think she's just, she's just like a, she's a, and uh, Laponia says, tell us why Irv Rubin was never sued by the ADL and the SPLC, Mr. Ford. Well, because they didn't see any interest in doing so. They weren't going to fundraise out of serving uh, after going after the, the Jewish terrorist, Irv Rubin. Right? So Richard Spencer has created a, a situation where there is an enormous appetite and money that is willing to fund operations to bring him and his type down you know, little dragonfly that goes about, here, there, yeah, yeah, everywhere. Yeah. You know, did she, was she ever a white nationalist? I think that's a better question. Uh, and she was, uh, she works with, we talked about this uh, with him too, actually. I guess she works with one of these reformed, these guys who um, bring people back from hate or whatever. Yeah. And look, if, if that's what your deal is, like, f- fair enough. Okay. But that organization, I've even heard this from a lot of other people. That organization is really dubious and just seems like a grift. And so I, I don't buy any of it. I don't, I don't, I don't buy reformation. I don't think there's any there, there to begin with. She was probably like a similar to Eli Klein, just a, a liar. Yeah, plus it's like, some some people in this world. I mean, what is it? One in thirty are sociopathic. I mean, it's like there are people in this world that don't have a core being to them. There is no there there, and they will say what you they think you want to hear, and that is scary as fucking hell. That those people are out there. Uh, you, you mentioned something earlier. Somebody asked you a question uh, in the super chat about Mikey not being released from the case or dismissed with, or whatever, having his dismissal granted. Yeah, um, and you said that the arguments he used in that dismissal, they weren't that the judge used. Oh, that the judge used? Well, uh, the arguments, many of the arguments that were used and I used as well, I literally copied them. (laughs) And so did Mike, so, yeah. But um, in terms of the argument, the the justification that was used by the judge, it seemed to be, it it always struck me as weird. I mean, this is like three or four years ago, so I don't even quite remember it. It just struck me as weird in the sense that it could have been applied to more people, including the League of the South. Did you ever use a um, 
like a, a lawyer during that time? Yeah, I used Danushi after that. And in terms of the, um, uh, in terms of, I, I won't go into further. Okay. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, okay. I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to push you say anything wrong or anything. Okay. But, um, Wait one second. Okay. Bogging the sent three dollars, Nick the knife versus Richard the Fed. All right, Bog, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, I guess I was just kind of looking for some specificity as to like what uh, why you think that you know like what you were implying basically like why why do you think that they let him off and not you? But then secondly, I kind of want to ask, did you look at did you file as many motions as he did? Yeah, he filed a lot more motions. So do you think they let him off because he was being a pain in the ass? Um, I mean, well, if you're asking my opinion, it, it seems to me like he had a he did have something that he wrote in his arguments that most people did, or none of the rest of them did, which because they were. Yeah, Mike uh, Enoch seemed to have superior legal advice compared to the other defendants. Trying to subpoena his, his, uh, the docs of his listener base, and mm -hmm. you know, he, he made a very, very good argument against that. Yes, this is Dingo speaking. And he tied that into throwing the whole thing out, and that is unique among the defendants. And um, I, I think Fair that's enough. why I got tossed personally. Fair enough. But, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't implying anything outside of I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's just there's so much about this case that is very curious, and I— to be honest, I think it should have been thrown out for most everyone. I mean, again, yeah. the, there is a legitimate, like, you know, James, it, it wasn't like this, I guess, in 2017 or 2018, but I mean, when James Fields has pled guilty to crimes, then, you know, if the case were Natalie Romero v. James Fields, th that is a open and shut civil case. Uh, but again, th I, I just feel that a serious magistrate judge would have taken different actions. I mean, it would have just kind of seen through what this was. The amount of just assertions of a literally in, in the original complaint of a criminal conspiracy and all of this kind of stuff. Just the, the level of hyperbole was over the top. And it just, it, we knew what this was about from the beginning. Now, once they got in the courtroom, of course, it, it wasn't just over the top nonsense. I mean, these are very good lawyers and know what they're doing. But if you go back to that original case, I mean, it, I, I think a serious judge should just say, look, this is absolutely outrageous. You can't just make bold assertions and treat that as fact. No, yeah, you don't have to try to convince me that this lawsuit was bullshit. Of course it was. Yeah. Uh, I, will, I wanted to say this, too. I forgot about this. Now, I was listening to that case on the phone, like, for a lot of that week. By the way, um, Dingo, keep talking. I'm going to step away for one second, and I'll come back. We'll finish up the college with musical number. An amazing episode tonight. I have to say, Richard, over the long haul. It's been a lot of fun. Go ahead, Dingo. I'll let you carry it here for a second while I step away. All right. Okay, I can do that. All right, cool. I'll, I'll bill you for it. Um, no, but uh, now that Ralph's gone, somebody in the chat was like, oh, Dingo sucking Spencer's talking. Yeah, you, you, you're, you fucking people can be so irrational. Like, how many times have I gotten on here and argued with this dude already? Like, plenty. You know what I mean? Like, he just hasn't said anything that's super fucking insulted me. I'm not, like, all horny to fucking debunk his vaccine opinions like you guys are. Okay, I'm sorry. If he says something I don't like, I'll call him an asshole. But, I mean, I just don't know what you want from me all the time. But it okay, so what do you want from me? I don't know what you want from me all the time. So I think uh, that's going to be it. Holly says, Mike's legal stance and strategy was good. I read his papers. People who say it's fishy that he got out aren't lawyers and they can't follow what happened. Yeah, I think uh, Mike took the smartest legal approach and got the best legal advice. Civil cases mean squat, says Laponius. Well, they can mean billions of dollars, so I wouldn't say they squat. Yeah, Dingo was Ford's greatest guest. Civilizations die by suicide, so uh, some also die by murder, right? The way the world works, the strong take what they want, and the weak endure what they must. That's it. Bye-bye.